Yeah, talking about liquidiv.com, promo code Nooners at checkouts. You see us drinking it on the show every single day. Where would we be, Japes, without Liquid IV in our lives? Dehydrated, we'd have headaches, we'd be tired, yeah. exhausted. Yep. Not be able to get through the day, get through work. We'd be sick all the time. I'd be hungover. <laughs> Every single day. Love the liquid IV. Liquid IV hydrates you with benefits like electrolytes, essential vitamins, and clinically tested nutrients with three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drinks out there, plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's just a little tiny stick full of powder. Pop it in 16 ounces of water. You're good to go. What's your reckon, Jabes? Double or triple hydrated? I would say double. I'd say triple. What? Nay. I'll say triple today. Huge fan of Liquid IV. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration. With Liquid IV, get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code Nooners at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop better hydration today using promo code Nooners at liquidiv.com. Yeah! Talking about expressvpn.com slash Nooners. Love ExpressVPN. You've got to have a VPN in today's world or you're not living your life right, brother. People are going to start stealing your passwords, all your bank info, everything. And I know most of you are probably thinking, uh, why don't you just use incognito mode? Let me tell you something. Incognito mode doesn't hide your activity. Doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can see every single website you've ever visited. That's why when I'm at home, I never go online without using Express VPN. Huge fan. I've had it for years. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background uh, of all my computers and my laptops and my phones, and it's super easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, like I was saying, phones, computers, uh, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it right now. Protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Mashable. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash nooners, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash nooners. Expressvpn.com slash nooners. Head there to learn more. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Ross Patterson Revolution! Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yeah! Yeah! Um, 
Thanks for listening to Ross Patterson Revolution. I know you guys have uh, some drives ahead of you. Uh, a lot of a lot of our audience um, is uh, indicated that they are driving quite a distance for the holidays, as am I. Uh, heading down to Florida to see my family for the holidays. And if you were like me, you need things to listen to. And last 4th of July, I dropped At Night She Cries While He Rides His Steed, my book on audio. Um, split it into two parts. And uh, Simon & Schuster flipped out about it. They pulled it a couple days later. And they said, don't do that again. Well, you know I love to hear that. Love to hear that. So for this Thanksgiving, I'm giving it away again. Good luck. Download it as fast as you can because I don't know how long it will stay up before it gets ripped. Um, and with that being said, we got some sponsors and then we'll, we'll just dive right into it and uh, enjoy the book. Uh, first and foremost, we got straightrazors.com. Since we are around the holidays, kids, it's time to get your family members something nice for Christmas. Get that dude in your life, be it a, a, a brother, a father, a cousin, uh, an uncle. Um, get, him a, get him a sweet shaving kit. Go to straightrazors.com and uh, pick, out, pick out some of your favorite products and, uh, and, your, and some kits to go with it. Because they got uh, the finest razors in the biz. The number one ranked aftershave in the world. The number one ranked cologne. Um, they've also got uh, conditioner and uh, shampoo now and, and some mustache wax. Uh, it's the fucking dope shit. Go to straightrazors.com, support the show, type in the promo code REVOLUTION for 20% off. I can promise you it'll be one of the finest gifts uh, you give and or get for Christmas. Go to straightrazors.com. Again, type in the promo code REVOLUTION for 20% off. Next up, we've got strikeforceenergy.com. Oh, yeah. Uh, Strike Force Energy comes in four amazing flavors: original, lemon, orange, and make America grape again. You can kick the can, kids. You don't need the can anymore. You can uh, keister. You can throw it out the window and you can say goodbye to it. You can get a box of ten for nine ninety five, which is fucking amazing. They ship everywhere in the entire world, and it goes in every liquid available: waters, beers, Kool Aids, uh, Lacroix, and Spindrift is my personal faves. Go to StrikeForceEnergy.com. Get yourself a subscription of the month uh, or get some stocking stuffers for some people and uh, type in the promo code REVOLUTION for 20% off. Again, that's StrikeForceEnergy.com, promo code REVOLUTION for 20% off. And lastly, before we dive into the book, um, grab the book. I'm giving you the, the audio book for free. Go, go to Amazon.com and just buy the fucking book. Um, you can go to Walmart.com or, or Barnes & Noble and, or all that other shit. Amazon's the fastest, gets there in 48 hours. And uh, if you like the audiobook, uh, grab yourself a hard copy since I'm probably going to be sued anyways. So this will just go to that lawsuit. Uh, pick up at night she cries while he rides his steed. Without further ado, ado adieu. Um, here is the first part of At Night She Cries While He Rides His Steed. Uh, There's a team of actors who did this with us, and uh, Jables did uh, a bunch of the voices as well. And it was one of the first times this was ever done before. So enjoy Thanksgiving, enjoy your ride, and enjoy your family. Here is at night she cries while he rides his steed, part one. Dreamscape presents At Night She Cries While He Rides His Steed by Ross Patterson. Narrated by the author and an ensemble cast. For Emma. Forever ago. Wait, that's the title of a fucking Bon Iver album. For Nikki, 
My waitress at the Daytona Beach Hooters, who I had sex with and never called back. I knew shit was going down when you drew hearts instead of dotting the I's and your name on my receipt. In case I left you with a child, this book is for you. Also, if you want to fake my signature on it and give it to him or her like it came from me, feel free. I won't say shit. The Life of St. James Street, James. June 9th, 2015, McSorley's Old Ale House, New York, New York. As I sit at an aged wooden table at the back of Manhattan's oldest bar, a man walks in and demands a Michelob Ultra. The bartender shakes his head and replies, We only have two types of beer here, light and dark. We also never had to serve women until a court order in 1970. The guy looks at him incredulously and says, I am a man. Not if you're ordering a fucking Michelob Ultra. I shake my head and laugh to myself as the man walks out. <laughs> it's only fitting that I'm doing this here. Hello, I'm St. James Street James. I hate road abbreviations, so I spell out my last name. At some point in your life, you've seen me partying all over the world, gracing the covers of many famous sport fishing and leisure magazines over the years. Along with my 26-page spread in the infamous July 1973 issue of Playgirl that's been banned, except in Luxembourg. You may think you already know everything about me, but you don't. The one secret I've been harboring for most of my adult life is that I'm 186 years old. That's not a misprint. I'm 186, Holmes. Yeah, I put an L in Holmes so you would understand how serious I am. I was rich enough to almost triple my life expectancy while permanently maintaining the looks of a 35-year-old man still in his prime. Oh, and I also beat AIDS. Twice. You can do that shit when you're rich, and I'm really fucking rich. The only other way to beat AIDS is if you win the Olympics. Go ask Magic Johnson or Greg Louganis if you don't believe me. Why am I telling you this? After living 186 years on this planet, I've become bored. And unless a scientist invents a new place to put a hole in a woman, I've done everything else there is to do in this life. I'm also tired of seeing of what the male species has evolved into. So the moment I finish writing my memoirs about my life, I'm going to off myself. <laughs> you read that correctly. I'm going to kill myself. This isn't going to be a casual Paris Jackson I ate a bunch of children's chewy Tylenol suicide attempt. I'm going to blow my fucking brains out. Before I do, I want you to know the real truth about me. That's why I'm writing this book with nothing but a loaded handgun and a pile of freshly cut pure Bolivian cocaine next to my old classic Remington Rand typewriter that Hemingway gave me. He only used it once as a urinal at a house party. After relieving himself, he shook twice and typed only one sentence on a piece of paper. This typewriter smells like piss. Get a new one, fuckface. <laughs> Classic Hemingway. If all of this sounds too intense, then stop reading the rest of this shit right now. Seriously. Put down your glasses without the prescription in them and close this book. Because this kind of male hubris isn't for you. I'm not going to apologize for being a real man, and I certainly didn't know when it became trendy to tell everyone you weren't cool in high school. Back in 1827, I was born in a time where men were actually men. 
We fucked whoever we wanted, wherever we wanted. We didn't pull out, and the only child support that was given is if you put a blanket in the basket before you dropped your illegitimate baby off on a stranger's front porch. We didn't cook shit using Pam or butter. Just a raw skillet and maybe a little spitz. We put our boxers on backwards so we could take a shit without having to pull them down before we sat down in an outhouse. The following memoir is filled with the most important stories ever told in the history of the United States. It will end all stories ever told about every other man ever told. So go fuck yourself, Buzz Aldrin. Enjoy my life. Sincerely, St. James Street James. Chapter 1. Monday, April 30th, 1849, Coloma, California. The day that I became rich. A tall, 32-year-old man stares deep inside a filthy hellhole of a gold mine with a dimly lit lantern trying to see through a cloud of dust. This man is me, but I refuse to give any further physical description of myself until I'm wealthy. Most great men usually do. What I can tell you is I'm jammed between the tits of the great American gold rush of 1849 and shit is fucking real. This isn't a goddamn hobby where you take your kid out panning for gold with a spaghetti strainer on Sundays hoping for the best. People died doing this shit. Which is why I pay someone else to do it for me. Suddenly, a dirty Chinaman in his 40s emerges from the dark hole with three dead parrots clinging to his shirt. He's smiling through cracked, dying of thirst lips, but my eyes are fixated on his tiny yellow hands. I don't want him touching me. So I shine my lantern in his face and demand that he stop walking toward me. Dropping to his knees, he cries out, You rich, boss! You rich! He opens his hand to reveal a small, brightly speckled rock covered in mud. I make him take off one of his wooden shoes and place the pebble inside of it. Carefully, I remove the canteen from around my neck and wash the dirt away. It appears to be gold, but to be sure, I make him bite into it. Staring at the nugget nervously, he knows what he has to do. He closes his eyes, places the nugget into his mouth, and bites down hard. Instead of his rotting teeth breaking off instantly, they make a soft imprint. Holy fucking shit. It's real hardcore American gold, and I'm fucking rich. I won't bore you with the details of how I then made this Chinaman excavate and load 480 pounds of gold onto my wagon, drag it into town personally, because I didn't want to tire up my horse, and melt it into gold bars by hand while I stood behind him with a loaded shotgun pointing at his head. Come to think of it, that was probably only boring for me. He was probably scared shitless. On that note, congratulations. You've just read the best first chapter of any book ever written. Notice how I skipped over my childhood and all that bullshit? That's because nothing cool happens in your life until you become rich. And up until that moment you just read about, I was a poor-ass farmer. My parents were decent people, but they were working-class citizens whose only claim to fame was that former President Martin Van Buren once took a shit in our outhouse during a campaign visit to California. You sure as fuck didn't pay 15 bucks to read about that. Let's just get to me being rich and fucking awesome. You're welcome. Chapter 2 Being rich makes you a better person. 
July 19, 1853, four years later. An extremely muscular man with calves and forearms that have more definition than Noah Webster's dictionary busts through the saloon doors of a tasteful whorehouse with a burlap sack full of gold slung over his shoulder. The doors explode off their hinges into a shower of splinters. The surprising thing about this muscular man is that he's lean, too. Not all roided out like a New Jersey teenager triple-stacking a month before spring break. You can see his cock pressing hard against his jeans, almost fighting with the left pant leg mid-thigh. It's not like the jeans are super tight or have some kind of Euro cut. It's just how big his penis is. This man is me, St. James Street James. And this is now the description I deserve. I survey the whorehouse slash bar through squinted eyes. Eyes so beautiful, butterflies masturbate after looking into them. Every whore in the entire place falls to her knees and prays toward me like I'm a Mayan god. I raise my hand, acknowledging them. Let me get a drink first, whores. Remember, sleeping with me is a privilege, not a right. So, I'll obviously be going by looks again today. If he doesn't make love to me right now, I'll fucking kill myself. One screams as she presses a knife forcefully into her neck. Grandma, stop it. You're acting fucking crazy. Her granddaughter says as she tackles her to the ground. Another whore races in and kicks the knife out of her hand as the grandma begins convulsing and speaking in tongues. <laughs> you give these whores an inch, they want the other seven. Unfazed, I walk up to the bar and take a seat. I drop my large burlap sack full of gold on the floor and groan heavily, letting everyone in the saloon know who the fuck I am. The weight of the gold causes several floorboards to break and a few whores faint. I yell out to the man behind the bar who is inches in front of my face. Quietly hand me an entire bottle of fucking whiskey and be discreet about it. An old Indian bartender in his 50s, Manuel, stares at me exasperated. You're going to have to pay for those double doors you broke first, St. James. I exhale in his face for 58 seconds straight without blinking just to prove a point. He doesn't blink once, and neither do I. This is our little game. He used to work on our farm and babysit me as a kid. We would play cowboys and Indians, except we weren't pretending. I consider him the closest thing I have to a friend in this town, but men never let that shit show back then. So instead, I reach into my burlap sack and pull out a large chunk of gold and drop it on top of the bar. Here you go, fuckface. Bottle me up. Without a hint of non, I shallantly slide my hand into my full-length elk-skin duster and whistle a show tune with pitch-perfect precision. I tap the exposed handle of my six-shooter, which is peeking out from my gun holster hip-high, and begin counting aloud how long it takes him to get me a drink in numerical Mississippis. Manuel shakes his head as he puts a bottle and a shot glass down in front of me. <laughs> I wave him off. I'm going to go ahead and grab the whole tit, so you can hold off on putting that training bra on, Manuel. He nods and removes the shot glass from the bar. I take a long swig and eye a couple of the whores. Subtlety does not ensue. Then I stick my entire tongue inside the bottle to make sure they know what I want. One whore blushes as she continues to jack off a random man underneath a table. 
<laughs> he gets caught up in my whole shit and tries to make eye contact with me. Even dudes want to be inside me. The only man who had the kind of sexual power I've had over the last century was George Washington Carver. Imagine smelling like a fresh bag of peanuts in every room you walked into. Carver knew it, utilized his strengths, and turned out more tricks than Chris Angel. He was a pimp like that. A buck-naked man suddenly walks through the hole left by the missing saloon doors wearing only his cowboy boots. He throws a horse saddle down on the ground. The goddamn grizzly ate all my clothes off. Can I get a ride to New Mexico to get my other pair of pants? In record time, I unholster my gun and shoot him in the chest. His body goes flying out of the saloon with his dick and balls slamming back against his abdomen. It happens so quickly that it ends up being a double tap. It's not like I'm staring hard. I just have the hearing of a dolphin. That double tap sound is so distinct. Jesus, St. James, you just shot New Mexico Mike. That motherfucker comes in here like that once a week and I'm sick of it. It's casual Friday, he says solemnly as he cleans a glass. Is it? Sorry, Manny. I always forget. Two Indian barbacks scurry out and pull Mike out by his legs across the floor and out the back door. In memory of Mike, I down the rest of my bottle of whiskey, then proceed to chug an entire bottle that rests in front of a stranger sitting next to me. I stand up and smash both bottles off my flex traps and scream in no particular direction. I need three horse. Two of them must have some type of background or formal training in circus performance, and the other must be able to throw twice her body mass above her head. Within seconds, I feel a tap on my shoulder and turn to see three eager women standing in a perfect pyramid directly behind me. I guess you'll do, I say before pushing them over on the floor and walking back to a shitty makeshift bedroom. When I hit the door of the bedroom, I loudly clear my throat looking back at the whores. <clears throat> I said, I guess you'll do. Get up off the floor and have some respect for yourselves. All three whores run toward the bedroom like I just announced I had a new cure for smallpox. A weird man holding a live chicken stands next to the bedroom and I punch him directly in the dick for looking at me the wrong way. He falls down in front of me and I step over him as if he doesn't exist. The chicken scampers away as he holds his junk, writhing on the floor in anguish. I wasn't looking at you the wrong way, I was born cross-eyed! The man screams. Turns out, he really is cross-eyed. <laughs> I didn't bother apologizing, though. I'm sure he gets that all the time. What am I going to do about it now? Not fuck these girls? You can't hear it, but laughter is coming out of my mouth as I write this. After the whores race in, I slam the bedroom door and begin to pull off my pants, peeling them down to the top of my boots. I sit down in an old wooden rocking chair in the corner of the room, take a cigarette out of my duster jacket, and strike a match off my right boot, which is now awkwardly pulled above my dong. The spark of the match lights up the room, and after lighting my cigarette, I use the remaining flame to light a small lantern on the nightstand next to me. All three women are now magically lit as if they're sitting for a presidential portrait. Even in soft, intimate lighting, I can clearly see that two of the whores are sixes on their best day and the other is a firm four. <laughs> you can do the math for yourself, but that is way past the ten total, so don't even fucking judge me. I'm at a whorehouse in Coloma, California in 1853. Trust me when I say we were lucky to have sixes.
I smile as I look down at myself. Well, Dick, it's up to you now. I drank two bottles of whiskey and killed a dude. Now you need to do the fucking. My dick nods at me. We have a long storied history together. Will you please take your boots off? We would be honored. One of the hotter ones says. Having heard this sentence a thousand times before, I laugh in her face. I know you would, but I'm married. Let's just get undressed and not pretend that this might turn into something eventually. If a married man takes his boots off to have sex with prostitutes, it's cheating. If he doesn't, he's just blowing off steam and bagging whores. The whores know that, yet they always want something more. Oh, you've had sex with over 400 grimy fucking minors? Will you marry me? <laughs> I promise that thought wouldn't be on my mind throughout the rest of our wedded bliss. Hilarious. What do you want us to do? The larger whore asked. Honestly, you were definitely the spotter of the group. I'd like you just to shut the fuck up and be the best base you can be. Don't drop the two hotter girls or make direct eye contact with me. Oh, and please don't ask if you can get boned by me too. She nods, obviously knowing her place in life. Inhaling deeply, she braces her fingers together to form a hand basket for the others to climb into. One at a time, the two other girls place a foot inside her clasped hands and she expertly flips each one of them onto the bed. The execution and the landing are perfect. I applaud quietly and hop over to the bed with my pants still down around my ankles to join the other two. No, I never pulled my jeans off over my boots to fuck. That would have required too much effort. Remember, these are just random whores. As the women strip down, I whistle at the two hot ones and smash my index fingers together, signaling the international sign for you two makeouts. They oblige. What happens next is a sexual tornado involving one man, two women, and the girl who is always the first out in Dodge Rock. By the way, just because I fuck with my boots on, don't think for one goddamn second it limits me sexually in any way. Truth be told, it makes me want to experiment more because I have to be more creative. To prove it, I start off by blindfolding each of them and making them grab the headboard. This way, my dick is truly a surprise, and the one not being dicked always wonders when her turn is coming and, more important, for how long. I switch up my rhythms, knowing their confusion mixed with blindness is something that only Helen Keller or every other blind person ever has probably experienced. When I'm behind one woman, I use my fingers to play the other woman's lady hole with the precision of a cellist. As I repeatedly switch back and forth between the two girls with complex rhythm, the bigger one conducts her own two-finger symphony in the corner per my instructions. I'm on some real Beethoven shit tonight. My mastery of sex has turned into an impromptu concerto with four people playing as one, each giving everything they have, knowing full well that it's for the best of the group. <laughs> You're only as good as your instrument, and on this night, I am finely tuned. After the whores have 38 and a half orgasms collectively, I finally decide that it's my turn to grab a gift from underneath the Christmas tree. Right before I climax, I grab a buck knife still strapped to my calf along with the bedsheet that has long ago been pulled off. I toss them to the big girl in the corner and make circular motions with my fingers instructing her on what to do. Once it clicks in, she knows exactly the surprise I have in store for these ladies. 
With my last thrust, just as I am peeking, I pull off each of the girl's blindfolds at the same time. The big girl runs around the side of the bed, now wearing the bedsheet as a ghost costume. Boo, motherfuckers! She screams at the girls. Terror-stricken, the two women slap each other simultaneously in the face as hard as they can and fall to the bed. Imagine the first thing you see after an hour and a half of intense blindfolded sex is a giant ghost shaking her hands in your face. To the big one's credit, the eye holes she cut out in the sheet are flawless. She must have been a seamstress before whoring, because typically, you don't find tailoring like that. Good for her. It's always nice for people to have an extra skill. After I pull up my jeans, I remove my timepiece and exhale deeply. Time to go home to the wife and kids for supper. I wipe my face with a pillowcase and drop two large chunks of gold down on the nightstand before I leave. The overweight one obviously gets nothing. I look back to admire my handiwork and I see the two hot girls lying on the bed like an exorcism just happened while the fat ghost waves goodbye to me. When I walk out, I'm greeted by a thunderous applause from the entire bar. The walls are super thin. I knew it, and they appreciate the performance I just put on in there. I throw my pillowcase into the crowd as a souvenir and whores begin fighting over it. My steed runs into the bar and on cue, two gimpy patrons lift me up into my saddle. I sling my burlap sack full of gold over my shoulder and ride out through the hole left by the broken double doors and a championship exits. Chapter 3. It's hard to get the smell of sex off. I feel more worn out than a stepladder in a midget's kitchen as I ride up to my three-story log cabin. Remember, I'm really fucking rich, so this goddamn place looks like a Norman Rockwell painting having a menage where the river runs through it in Legends of the Fall. Even though it's enormous, I only put in 14 bedrooms to keep things tasteful. My legs feel wobbly when I dismount. I'm not sure if it's from the graphic sex I just had or the six-mile ride home from the bar. I lead my horse to the large, beautiful river that flows in front of my home. Drink, fucker. As he leans down to drink, I kneel down beside him and splash some water on my dick and balls to get the smell of pussy off me. When the sex water drifts downstream and reaches his snout, my horse smiles at me as if to say, You fucking son of a bitch. Why didn't you let me peek in the window? I'm a horse. They never would have suspected anything weird. I remember thinking to myself at the time, My steed and I are close. Maybe I should let him watch sometime. I've never lost wood before and I've done some sick shit. I definitely wouldn't lose a boner just because a horse is in the room. From my back pocket, I pull out a handkerchief emblazoned with the initials SJSJ and 14 karat gold and wipe off my dong. Then I throw it in the water because I hate used shit. As I watch it float away, I see a huge, bright full moon reflecting off the water, smiling down. It winks at me, and we share a nice moment. I take my gun out of my holster and fire it into the air. Children! Your father is home! I lumbered toward the house with my sack full of gold. Upon walking in, I see my 32-year-old wife, Loretta, a tall, red-headed Irish woman with huge tits. Also staring up at me respectfully are my seven boys, all under the age of eight. Each one of them tightens his hungry fists, gripping forks and knives. They all begin chanting in unison. We want gold! We want gold! We want gold! Loretta smiles and shrugs her shoulders. 
What do you expect? They're starving. They've been waiting for you to get home. I can't be that late for dinner. What time is it? It's 2.30 in the morning. Oh, sorry. I thought this was one of those fallback time change days. She rolls her eyes and hands me a metal cheese grater. I pull a chunk of gold out and begin to lightly shred it over my boys' plates of meat and potatoes. They tear into their cold dinners like tiny Viking warriors. Satisfied that they've each got enough, I give the rest of my chunk of gold to my youngest, Bourbon Street James, who is one year old. He claps excitedly and puts it in his mouth, sucking on it. Exhausted, I pull up a chair and look down at the faces of my children. As a man, there's no bigger satisfaction than coming home with a huge sack full of gold every night and hearing the sounds of your children's teeth chomping through our country's best non-renewable resource. I kick my boots up on the table and light up a cigarette as Loretta brings me my ashtray that's made out of half a monkey skull that I won in a poker match in Reno. I'm not sure whose monkey it was. I just thought it would be a good conversation starter if we ever had people over. Taking a drag of my smoke, I watch Loretta walk back into the kitchen to clean dishes. I whistle at her, but she doesn't smile back. Big tits, can you draw me a hot bath after you're done in there? I'm exhausted from another long day of standing over my Chinaman and watching him dig my gold. She stares at me incredulously before replying, I'm going to have to boil like 48 pots of hot water to do that right now. Awesome. Thanks, doll. You're a lamb of God. I fire a pretend six-shooter at her with my fingers. As she storms off, I look over at my kids and ask, How was your day? My oldest son, Daniel, who is almost eight, speaks up. It was so much... Rhetorical, I say, cutting him off. There's seven kids under the age of eight who go to a bullshit schoolhouse that holds 18 children total. All they learn is how to read and count in their fingers. Big fucking deal. After I finish my cigarette, boredom sets in, and I whistle for Loretta as I walk upstairs into the bedroom. Bath time, Red. Let's start filling up those pots. I can't wash myself. When Loretta finally hobbles in 20 minutes later with two pots of boiling water, I'm already stark-ass naked, stretched out inside my personal clawfoot tub that is also made out of 14-karat gold. A large golden grizzly bear is mounted on the front of the tub, facing inward. Are you comfortable? She asks. Not really. Let's put a rush on that water, Ginge. I don't want it to be too hot, then too cold. You get it. She splashes both pots of semi-warm water on me and storms out. This goes on for the next hour or so until she finally limps in with the last two pots, her arms shaking from the effort. I stare at her like a nervous parent at the Special Olympics as she slowly walks over to the tub and pours them in. I clap for her when she finishes, then hold up a bar of soap and lean forward, pointing at my back. She drops to her knees and begins to scrub my back and genitals. On my jennies, I'm not talking about washing them from the front but from behind and up underneath the way God intended them to be scrubbed. Do you want to get in this tub with me? I ask Loretta. No, I just want to get some sleep. The kids have to be up in five hours and I'm exhausted. Jesus, you're a fucking downer. Now do you understand why I'm always late for dinner? You're always asking me to help with the kids, crying about your sister's polio, or asking me to send letters back to your family members in Ireland to see if they're still alive after the potato famine. 
I'm not a fucking postman or someone whose biggest fault is they listen too much. I'm a real fucking man who needs a power wash with those two. I point to her breasts. A power wash is when a woman with huge breasts soaps them up and washes you with them in a back-and-forth motion with enough power to kill a small elk. Is that all I am to you? She asked, choked up. Don't be so hard on yourself. You also cook and clean, too. It's nice to know that that's what you think of me. Loretta breaks down and starts to cry, so I rub her back with my hand, then expertly pop her bra off. Come on, Lou. Don't be like that. If you didn't clean me, I would be dirty as fuck. She shakes her head in disbelief at how awesome I am, giving me the old, this is the last time look, as she slowly removes her top. Her breasts escape from her bra with the desperation of two Anne Franks, both wanting to see the outside world. I'm continuously amazed at how enormous her areolas are. They take up such a wide area of her breasts, it's like I'm seeing the tarp covering the infield during a rain delay at a ball game. Ever so delicately, she pulls down the rest of her dress, revealing an ass like a honey-glazed Christmas ham freshly cut down the center in an unbelievable bush. If you don't have enough club, you're going to have trouble making it to the green from that rough. She didn't say anything to me as she steps into the tub, her eyes entranced in a catatonic stare. I reach up and put my hand on her breasts. Do you not like this? I ask in a German accent, just because I can do one. I know where you've been tonight. Just do what you're gonna do. Shh, 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 shh. Once I get going, you'll forget about all the other women I've slept with and appreciate the new techniques I've learned. She finally shows a hint of a smile, acknowledging the fact that she's able to reach sexual heights with me that she could never achieve with another man. As she straddles me and begins to ride me, water splashes up over the sides of the tub and onto the floor. Her massive breasts have caused a tsunami-like current, creating the kind of deep curls that Kelly Slater deuces his wetsuit over. I whistle softly, inviting my steed over to peek into the window. He nods at me with appreciation for the heads up as he trots over and sticks his head in. I was right. I'm definitely not losing wood over it. If anything, I've gained an extra inch. As much as I'm proud of myself at this moment, I'm even prouder of my dick, which has been through fucking war today. I let Loretta's slow ride continue for a few more minutes, but I'm already mentally planning my ground strategy. Why? Because I hate having sex in water. Having sex in water is like dry humping in buttonfly jeans. It's awkward, it hurts, and you can't feel anything. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, it's a decent hors d'oeuvre, like a bacon-wrapped plantain, but it's no awesome blossom when it comes to starter apps. If shit is going to get live, you need to do it on dry land so you can get some real traction. Feet, elbows, knees, any kind of grip. I squeeze her ass cheeks hard and lift her up out of the water, creating one last final tidal wave that pushes the rest of the bathwater out of the tub underneath the bedroom door. Oh my hand! I'm not gonna lose you in this! One of my kids screams out to the other children. The current's too strong! This is probably where we say goodbye! Another one answers. Shut the fuck up! We're making love in here, I scream. Hearing a child's voice during lovemaking would usually make most men lose an erection, but I'm not most men. 
I'm St. James Street, James, so I walk over to the closest full-length mirror in our bedroom to purposely catch a glimpse of myself wet and fully flexed, which fuels my fire. I'm cut like a fresh London broil after Sunday mass. Nothing gets me harder than being able to see myself during sex. When I rise up on my tiptoes three inches so I can see every last goddamn tendon in my calf muscles swell, Loretta becomes suspicious and I'm forced to turn my attention back toward her. There were still a few more poses I wanted to beast out, but that will have to wait for another day. Instead, I carry Loretta over to the bed as she holds out her arms. She braces them as if I'm going to drop her down aggressively, but I don't. Instead, I flip her upside down and go for the standing up 69. It's a move seldom used or even seen for that matter, and truthfully, I don't even know if I'm doing it for me or just to impress my horse. It requires so much upper body strength that hopefully it throws my wife off the trail of how much sex I actually had earlier. Who else could do this right now? Off the top of my head? Jesus or Zeus, maybe? <laughs> After that, I'm blanking. I'm putting Jesus in the same sentence as me out of respect, but truthfully, I don't see him bawling out like me. After 30 minutes of standing cunnilingus, I rotate her right side up and toss her backward onto the bed like a Romanian acrobat. We begin to make love passionately on the bed in the missionary position. By now, you probably noticed that I keep saying making love when referring to my wife. It's because she's my fucking wife, asshole, so I don't treat her the same as the other whores. My seven children came out of her vagina, all of them through natural childbirth, and I respect that shit. The least I can do is make love to her. After her second orgasm, I flip her over on top of me, cowgirl style. I leave the lanterns on in the room so I can see her huge, natural tits swinging back and forth off her chest. With her on top, I can finally go full bone and get every single last inch in. As I thrust, I lean forward, slightly raising my upper body off the bed so my abdominal muscles can be on full display. Loretta deserves this. Nay, she needs this. Do you have any laundry you need to do? Otherwise, I'll put this washboard away. No, not yet. You better keep it out. She starts punching me in the stomach repeatedly as she keeps riding. I begin to do a series of mini ab crunches just because it feels right. After a clean set of 40 and two more orgasms had by her, it's time for me to climax. I've never been accused of being a selfish lover. Some might even say that I give too much of myself in the bedroom. So my orgasm is well-deserved at this point. It's time to downgrade this Cat 5 boner to a tropical storm. Make them spin like cows caught in a tornado, I say softly. She nods and leans back, rocking her ass back and forth on my dick, causing her tits to bang together like a wet seal clapping. It's times like these when I realize why I married her. She's always had the biggest tits in town, and every man hated that she married me. By the way, these are the exact thoughts that go through my mind every single time I climax. I also tend to think about revenge shit I'm going to do to other people. It's fucked up, but somehow it heightens my orgasms. Squeezing her apple-bottom ass, I arch my back and finally release. I'm achieving, I scream at the top of my lungs. As that simple two-word sentence flies out of the window and echoes across the land, I look over and lock eyes with my steed who stares at me with admiration. It's a moment of pure, utter bliss. 
Loretta crumbles on top of me and puts her head on my shoulder, looking at me like a lost puppy dressed as a wizard. St. James, I've been thinking about something a lot today. That you want me to build a separate house for the children to live in so we don't ever have to hear them and they can raise themselves? I'm cool with that. I can have a crew of builders out here tomorrow. What? No! Oh, then what is it? I was thinking we could get a cat. The kids really want one. Why the fuck would you even ask me shit like that? A cat? Not in this fucking lifetime. All of our kids would be sucking each other's dicks the second that goddamn thing arrived. Men don't have cats. I'm gonna go sleep in the barn with my steed. Thanks for ruining this moment. I pull my arm out from under her so fast that her head barely moves from the pillow. Still buck naked, I get up and grab my jeans off the floor, and jumping straight up in midair, I put them on both legs at a time. Using my foot, I grab my cowboy hat off the ground and flip it up onto my head as I leave. Loretta pulls the bed sheets up, covering herself as she quietly sobs. Just thought it would be nice, she says softly. After I slam the bedroom door and leave, I notice my feet are wet. Daniel! Get a mop and clean up this bathwater in the living room. It's fucking soaked. Not one great man in history has ever owned a cat. Therefore, my sons never will. This is why I love my steed more than anything in this world. He would never do some shit like this. Ever. That night, as I lie on the ground out in the barn with him curled up behind me, using his torso as my pillow, I dream of the first day I met him. I was a young boy, maybe seven or eight, when I first saw him standing on top of a diving platform at the Nevada State Fair. He must have been twelve stories up. There was this jack dick dressed in a tasseled cowboy outfit on top of him, rousing up the crowd with his ten-gallon hats. Who wants to see us jump into this unbelievably small pool of water below? He screamed at the cheering crowd. I sure as fuck didn't. That's when the horse and I locked eyes. I noticed his grace and beauty right away. Plus, I dug the fact that he wasn't afraid of heights. From that moment, I knew that he needed to be my steed. After that split second of eye contact, he sensed what he had to do. Kill the asshole riding him. Without warning, he leaped off the edge and did a triple backflip, throwing that fake wannabe cowboy off of him way out past the crowd. As all the people gasped in horror, that fringed asshole hit the ground with a collision so violent that his organs exploded out of his body. When the carnies rushed to attend to what was left of him, my steed climbed up out of the pool and strode over to me. No one even noticed us ride off together, and we've never been apart since. You tell me you've had a stronger relationship than that in your whole life, and I'll let you piss on my face sitting down. Chapter 4 Every man needs a dynamite montage to feel alive. The warm sun shines down through the slats of the barn against the button of my jeans. It feels like my cock is being burned off and I jolt upright. I wipe my eyes and notice a half bottle of whiskey near me. I take a swig to get the engines going, then pull down my pants and take a shit in the stall where my horse shits. Hard clumps hit the hay right next to his pile. Daniel, come clean out the fucking stable. There's shit all over it. Damn it. Why is it always me, Dad? 
I stumble outside the barn and see four of my boys holding ladles, drinking out of a large trough full of water. Casually nudging them aside, I dunk my head in. Loretta comes running out of the house, screaming at me so loudly I can physically hear her underwater. St. James! That's the clean drinking water for the kids! God damn it, woman! It's not like we don't have an entire river that runs right in front of our fucking house! I'm going out for the day. I blow past her into the house, grabbing a shirt, my cowboy boots, and a large overstuffed saddlebag by the front door. My steed comes running out of the barn with his saddle already on. One of my middle kids is on all fours in front of me, so I use his back to step up onto my horse. Dad, I was playing jacks, my son says. You're welcome, buddy, I say as I begin to trot off. Looking back, I notice Daniel shaking his head as he shovels shit out of the barn. This fucking stinks, Dad, he says to me. I look at him and say, tell you what, you go find some gold, then maybe you can come out and shit in the barn and tell someone else to clean it up. Deal. I salute everyone and ride off into the distance. It's days like these where I just need some time to myself to cool off and blow shit up. I need a fucking sweet dynamite montage. Hell, every man needs one. Riding through the forest, I bear down on my steed while expertly holding a lit match between my teeth, spotting my first targets. A beautiful set of ten baby Christmas trees. I grab a stick of dynamite from my saddlebag, light it, and throw it behind my back. No-look style. Yeah, I invented dynamite. Not that other dickbag who was a peace prize named after him. It wasn't that fucking hard to figure out how to dump a bunch of gunpowder into something and light it. The explosion uproots the trees and they crash to the ground. All I see is a few stumps smoldering as dirt clouds shoot high up into the air. Now that I'm in a rhythm, I see a large moose off to my left. I skyhook a lit stick over my head. Boom! That fucker explodes into a thousand pieces. Chunks of fur and blood are scattered all over the trees and my clothes. A set of moose teeth and one hoof are all that remain. Fuck yeah, I just did that, I say to myself out loud. After two hours of blowing shit up, I stop next to the river and jump down from my horse. I hear hunger pains from my steed, so I reach into my saddlebag and grab the last stick of dynamite. You hungry, buddy? He nods that he is. <laughs> okay, okay, stand back. I light the final stick and casually toss it into the river. Trout and salmon explode out of the water and rain down from the sky in front of him. Typically, horses don't eat fish, but mine has champagne taste, just like I do. He grins with a look of satisfaction on his face as I bend down and drink out of the river, which has now resumed proper flow. With the water rushing over my lips, something washes up and sticks to the side of my face. I lift my head up and peel what feels like a wet cloth off my cheek. Looking closely, I notice it's my SJSJ handkerchief from last night, except now there's a little blood on it. What the fuck? I unholster my guns and turn upstream when all of a sudden, boom! The ground shakes beneath my feet, followed by men's laughter echoing down the mountain. My acute sense of hearing detects nine white males in their late 30s and early 40s, and one Asian male whose age is unknown because our calendar system is different. Boss, you reach, you reach, the Asian man screams. Son of a bitch. 
More laughter echoes louder. I know exactly what this means and it isn't good. Quickly, I holster back up and put my handkerchief in my pockets. For good measure, I also pull a small mango out of my saddlebag, make an incision in it, squeeze all the juice into my mouth, and snort a key bump of gunpowder. This concoction is known as the Standing Jonathan. It gives me strength throughout my quads and keeps my mind sharp in case I have to kill a large group of people at the same time. My friend Pete Newhouse, who dabbled in homosexuality, invented it. Pete died a couple years later fighting for what he believed in. Same-sex clothing for his wife. He always dressed her up like a dude and she killed him. After pounding my standing Jonathan, my mind is clearer than an albino's iris as I ride my steed toward the chaos and confusion. I wish this book had a tripwire for that page, so that way when you read that last line, ride my steed through the chaos and confusion, Mozart's Requiem in D minor would kick in. Also, if a picture could pop out of me with a huge boner, that would be dope too. <laughs> I'll also settle for an illustration, just saying. Riding up the side of the mountain, I come to a halt when I see an explosion inside a mining shaft much like my own. A group of men stand around the mine's opening, and a small Asian man comes running out covered in dirt and mud. He's screaming and holding up a bloody piece of gold. Deja vu hits me like a fist to the butthole. What do we have here, gentlemen? I ask. All of the men turn at once and reach for their guns. I shoot the chunk of gold out of the Asian man's hand, taking off two of his fingers as well. That might seem extreme, but blowing off two of his fingers will later help me distinguish my Asian from theirs, so it's kind of a two-birds thing. The men freeze as the Asian man screams in pain. Amazingly, they're hesitant to draw, even though it's nine against one. That's how fucking badass I am. We don't want no trouble, one of them says in a thick southern accent. Okay, then I want everyone to take their pants off and tell me what the fuck you're doing here. As the men bend down and start to undress, one of them pipes up, Why do we have to take off our pants? In case one of you has any knives on you. I have 14 knives strapped to various parts of my thighs and calves as we speak, but you can't see them, can you? Everyone shakes their head no. Another man puts his hand up. Hold on, boys. Nobody let their pants hit the ground. Are you sure for something? The men pause. Pants at mid-thigh. Some might call me the sheriff. I'm the richest man in town, so close enough. The biggest and oldest man laughs. He pulls up his pants and whistles with two fingers. <laughs> Out of a makeshift tent in the distance behind him, a beautiful topless blonde woman with milkmaid braids rolls out a wheelbarrow full of gold. She looks like she just ran down the Swiss Alps through a perfect field of tits. That's how flawless she is. My first thought is, holy shit. What if someone is richer than me? What will all the people in town think? Also, why didn't I think of hiring topless women for my gold mine? That's fucking genius. I snap out of it and regain my focus. Do you have a deed for this mine, I ask? Yup, the big man says as he pulls a folded up paper out of his pocket and approaches me. He sticks two fingers into his mouth and again whistles loudly. Boom, 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 boom! One by one, dynamite explodes inside too many mine shafts to count. As I duck my head, he smiles broadly. Half of his teeth are missing, and the other half are gold. Also got deeds for the rest of them, too. 
The men all laugh in unison, exposing their gold teeth as well. A whole team of hot, topless Dutch women strut out of the tent on cue with empty wheelbarrows, rolling them to their respective mines. These guys are way more advanced than me. Also, these women are obviously 100% authentic European chicks. It isn't like they're haggard and suffered through some hardships to escape oppression. They look happy to be doing this shit. Jesus Christ. I feel my world ending as my vision blurs, staring at the deeds. Somehow I'm able to make out the name on all of them, the Schlager Brothers. I've never heard of them. The Schlager Brothers? Where are you from, and how come I've never heard of you? West Virginia originally, but we've been here almost two years. We're mountain people, so we don't go into town much. I reckon we will now, though, he says, almost challenging me. And then it starts to sink in. Perhaps my richness has caused me to become complacent. I haven't been on the lookout at all for competition these last four years. Have I let my big swinging dick get the best of me? I shake this notion off and quickly regain my composure. Where does the name Schlager come from? It's German and Dutch, I'm told. Just like former President Martin Van Buren. Really? He took a shit in my outhouse as a kid. You don't say, he says as he softens. Hey, man, I think we got off on the wrong foot. Would you like to join us for lunch in our ritual bukkake session? Shit. I hesitate trying to resist, but he's found my weakness. Yes. Yes, I would. As much as I hate what's going on right now, a man never turns down a bukkake session. It's just disrespectful. I begrudgingly follow the schlagers as they head towards the tents. I'm definitely not in the right headspace you need to be in for an impromptu bukkake sesh. The biggest one smiles and pats me on the back. <laughs> Guess we could have left our pants off, boys, he says. Everyone laughs as we walk into the huge tents. Mountains of gold nuggets rest on tables in makeshift scales. A huge pile of gold that has been ground down to dust is being divided by a couple brothers. One of them rolls up a dollar bill and snorts a monster fucking line of it. Next level shit, Holmes. He turns and hands me a rolled up dollar bill and points to a huge rail. You want a toot? No. I want two. Feeling everyone's eyes on me, I pull out my double nostril, gold encrusted, customized snorter and pile drive two lines at once. One up each nostril. A hush falls over the room and the brothers nod at one another, impressed. Another topless blonde woman grabs my arm and whispers in my ear. This way, sir. She says seductively in a Dutch accent. She leads me in another direction where I see a smaller tent inside the tent I'm currently in. A tent inside of another tent equals mind blown. Inside the smaller tents, I see more Schlager brothers standing in line with their pants off in front of yet another beautiful nude blonde chick kneeling on the floor. It's your standard line for an informal bukkake session, so I drop my pants and wait my turn along with everyone else. As I stand there, cock exposed, I realize the unfathomable has happened. I'm not even excited. Thousands of years ago, Asians created bukkake sessions as a way to garner trust and assert fairness after sealing a business transaction. It showed peace and harmony. 
Right now, I feel as if I'm sealing my business fate by standing in this line. Good thing that it's common law that another man is not permitted to look another man in the eye during the ceremony. If so, they would see my trepidation as my turn approaches. Are you nervous? Asked the beautiful blonde woman kneeling on the floor, staring up at me. <laughs> yeah, I'm nervous. For you, I say as I fake a laugh. As I tug on my penis, it feels like I'm holding a wet sock. Son of a bitch. Not here, not now. This can't happen. I need to show that mentally I have not been shaken by what has transpired, and I need to do it in impressive fashion. So I have to dig deep. I pull out the mental shovel and go inside my mind grave, also known as the go-to. Way, way back in the depths of every man's mind, they have that one go-to night. The one night that was so magical that no matter what horrific sexual situation you've gotten yourself into, you can always think of this night to finish the job. A man may go to this night a hundred times over the course of his life, depending on what his lifestyle is. <laughs> I have never gone there before, but I can't show weakness in front of these men. So I close my eyes and go there, stroking with the precision of the Harvard crew team. My go-to is the night of May 21st, 1839, when my dad finally let me drive the wagon into town by myself for the first time to pick up two sacks of oats for our family. He handed me two loaded shotguns before I left and said, Watch out for Indians. They've been robbing white people. As I rode into town, I was stopped by a hollering group of them, faces painted. Up close, I realized they were all girls and they were hot as fuck. Without saying a single word, they proceeded to rob me of my virginity. They tied me down inside the back of my wagon and raped me for hours. Right around dawn of the following morning, as the sun was rising, they gave up. One of them proposed to me when she finished. Three others were weeping as they kissed and washed my feet, calling me Spirit Dick. The last one wiped her face paint off and told me she was white, which wasn't true. That's the kind of sexual power I held, even as a boy. As I looked down at the chick kneeling on the ground in front of me, I hit my stride. Just when I'm about to unload a triple roper, I grab my bloody SJSJ handkerchief from my pocket and squeeze it tightly, screaming out, FREEDOM! Shivering as if there was a chill in the air, I slowly release the hanky. By the time it hits the ground, my balls are backdrafting up into my body, and I ejac with a force that would baffle seismologists for years. The woman seems to be in shock as I take a moment to admire my masterpiece. Her body now resembles a Jackson Pollock painting. She blinks her eyes and nods in appreciation. After I zip up, I nod at the next man, letting him know that I am safely finished and he can begin. On the way out of the tiny tents, I run into the eldest Schlager. He smiles and extends his hand. Do you have a good time? He asks. I'm not shaking your hand, dude. We were just touching our dicks. So? We're rich. It doesn't count. It only doesn't count if we just completed a business transaction. You're right. Let me buy your gold mine. Name your price. Fuck you. If I sell to you, you'll be able to control the entire town. We already control the entire town. Now, we want everything. You control the town? That will be the fucking day. 
You might control this mountain, but definitely not the town. I'm still the candy man to all the toothless children. Forcing a laugh, I seal the top button on my jeans and reattach my sidearms. Although my confidence is shaken, I grab my dick like a man never flinching. I stare him down with lifeless eyes as if I have Down syndrome. You know, I never did catch your first name, I calmly say. It's Sven. Seven? No, Sven. No firsty. It's Dutch. Why do you give a shit? Well, you have to pay the engraver by the letter on your tombstone. If I were you, I'd have your brothers just ask for the numeral. It'll be cheaper. I whistle for my steed and walk out without ever breaking eye contact or blinking. Sven screams, This is just the beginning! We'll be everywhere soon! As I ride out, I think of how proud I am for pulling off that triple roper in the Bukaki sesh. But now what do I do about not being the richest man I know? I can't let a bunch of Dutch rednecks take me down. That's when it suddenly dawns on me. I need to buy up every fucking thing in town. I dig my heels hard into my steed and head straight up to the deed office. An enormous sense of urgency swells as I ride down Main Street, partially because a full string section is playing in the town square, begging for money. <laughs> Street musicians are the worst. We get it. You're poor. Move on. I tie up my steed and walk inside the deed office where I'm greeted by a long line of the filthiest sons of bitches you can imagine. Picture the people in line at a DMV and the entire front row of defendants at a DUI court combined. Yeah, let that wine breathe for a sec. Plus, showers don't really exist, so all these people stink like 10,000 Mexicans took a shit in their hands. The deed office is a place where people of every walk of life are just trying to claim anything they can get their disgusting hands on. Think about it. Alaska didn't even exist yet in the 1800s. It was just a cold place where you could fuck bears if you were into that. I could buy the entire state for $80. After 30 seconds, I'm fed up with the lines, so I pull out my gun and fire it into the ceiling six times. Everyone hits the floor, and I walk toward the front. I'm St. James Street, James, the richest man in town, and I'm skipping this line. Nobody says shit to me as I walk to the first deed teller, an old man in his 70s with one foot in the grave. He stares at me through a monocle. His name is John Monopoly. This guy's a fucking asshole. Even his own family hates him. Years later, his grandson created a board game named after him to make his name synonymous with families arguing over shitty deeds. That kid even named a property after me. What can I do for you this fine day, he says as he peers over at me at the counter. I'd like to buy every gold mine in town, please. He pulls out a large old map that looks like something Ponce de Leon used to jizz into on long voyages. You can actually hear it crack as he opens it. He slams it down on the counter in front of him, staring at it carefully. Sorry, sir, but they're all bought up, he says. By who? The Schlager brothers. They bought up every mine in town except for yours, of course. Next! Hang on, you old bag of dicks. I want to buy some more shit. What do you have in mind? How about some of the other mines, I say in a lower register? I told you all of the other gold mines are bought up. I lean across the counter and whisper quietly, How about the silver or copper mines?
What's that you say? I come to you. Do you have any silver or copper mines for sale? I ask, slightly raising my voice. You say you want to buy the silver or copper mines? Everyone in the entire deed office stops and stares. After a long pause, they begin laughing at me uncontrollably. A dirty-looking Mexican man starts pointing at me, turning to the line. Copper, silver? That's what us poor people buy, he laughs. I unholster my pistol and shoot him right in the heart. He hits the ground dead as shit. Everyone quickly averts their eyes from me as the dead man is dragged out. Mr. Monopoly leans across the counter and motions me toward him with his index finger. Mr. Street James, if you want my friendly advice, I'd start saving some of your money. An audible gasp can be heard from the patrons behind me. Did you just try to sun me by spewing out financial advice, I ask? Mr. Monopoly immediately tries to backtrack. I, I, too late. I stand up from behind the desk, calmly pull out my gun and blow this motherfucker away. To emphasize my point, I pull out my other gun, unleashing the entire cylinder into him after he is already dead. I jump up onto the counter and yell, Let's get one thing straight. St. James Street James is still the richest motherfucker in this town, and for your troubles, here's some gold. Digging into my pockets, I take out handfuls of gold chunks and throw them on the floor just to watch these grimy bastards dive onto the ground and fight for them like the peasants they are. I smile to myself as I walk out. It's been a long fucking day and I need a drink, maybe a prostitute or two. I deserve it. This is the end of the disc. The audiobook continues on the next disc. Chapter 5. The Wild West was rad because you could just kill people. Over the next six months, the Schlager brothers slowly integrate into society and spend their gold throughout the town. I see these assholes every day. It is jolting looking at these rednecks riding down Main Street hollering weird incestuous innuendo toward one another. I'm gonna suck your dick! One of them screams out. Not if I suck yours first! Another one laughs. Just kidding, but not if it's dark, then you'll never know it was me. <laughs> After a long day, I don't need to hear that shit. I just want a drink and ten sets of tits in my face. When I hop down from my steed, I see my favorite sleepy little whorehouse going off like electricity has just been invented. I walk in and see a midget dressed in only a tuxedo shirt and a jacket, naked from the waist down, playing the piano like a tiny little Chopin. All of the whores are topless, dancing on top of the tables. Two of them are making out with each other on a makeshift stage that has been set up in the back of the saloon. The Schlager brothers are front and center, throwing tiny chunks of gold onto the stage. They raise mason jars full of liquor and toast each other, laughing like animals. My blood begins to boil. Behind the bar, I see Manuel serving as many drinks as he can. I have to fight my way through the crowd to get to him. Manny, what the shit is happening in here? The Schlager brothers came in this morning and I have been giving out free liquor all day. He screams back at me over the madness. So what? I buy drinks for the entire place all the time. Yeah, but this new liquor is fucking crazy, man. Everyone is going banana dick over it. People take a shot of it and lose their minds. What is it? Manuel grabs a bottle from behind the bar and hands it to me. The label reads Goldschlager. 
I feel like he's just handed me the first breast implants. I've never seen anything like it. It's some crazy hybrid liquor from Europe and West Virginia. It's got real chunks of gold in it, man. How fucking crazy is that? Here, have a shot. Everything is on the house today, courtesy of the Schlagers. Manuel pours me a shot and slides it down the bar. He holds up his own shot and we all air cheers, drinking it together. God damn it, this shit is smooth. Manuel looks at me and his eyes start rolling into the back of his head. I'm confused until I see a woman pop up and wipe the side of her mouth. He was getting blown the whole time we were talking. Jesus, man. That guy never gets blown either. People really are going bugfuck over this shit. He pours another shot and slings it to me. This is the greatest day of my life, Manuel screams. It's like people forgot I'm an Indian and they're treating me like a real person. He rips his leather vest off and throws it out into the crowd. Staring into the clear liquor, I see the gold flakes floating around in a trance-like motion as if they're dancing along with the music from the piano. Clear liquor doesn't exist in these parts, let alone liquor with chunks of gold in it. All I can think about is how rich the Slogger brothers keep getting. They've almost taken over the entire town in just a little over a half a year, and now they're so rich that it will make other people shit gold after drinking their liquor. Does this mean that poor people will be digging into their own shit so they can turn a profit? Will this change the balance of power between the classes? Are people going to be holding guns to each other's heads and asking them to shit their pants so they can get a score? Why am I thinking about this? I snap out of it, take the shot, and slam it on the table. A man's hand slaps me on the shoulder from behind. That drink's the shit, ain't it? I quick draw and fire a shot into his stomach, then reholster without even turning around. The entire bar grinds to a halt and stares at me. Even the half-nude midget pianist stops playing and runs out of the bar. I glance down at the man I just shot, recognizing his face. It's one of the Schlager brothers from the Bukaki line. He looks up at me in disbelief as he coughs up blood. Why would you do that? He asks. No one asked me to drink and shit. You hear me? I said this drink is the shit. Now I'm dead. He closes his eyes and dies on the floor. The other Schlager brothers get up from behind their chairs and rush me, forming a half circle. I do my best to keep my back pressed against the bar so they can't surround me. The half-nude midget runs back in and quickly grabs his bowler hat from on top of the piano before running back out. Where the fuck is he going that he needs his bowler hat? Sven, the beefy schlager brother from earlier, steps out in front of the half-circle. You killed my brother! You got fifteen more. You think I'm going to let you drink my free liquor, kill one of my brothers, and I'm just going to be cool with it? If you want to go against the hand of God, may peace be with you. I say as I point to my gun. Manuel pipes up into the background. Don't do it. St. James Street James is the fastest gun I've ever seen. He'll kill all of you. Is that so? Sven says. He's full of shit, Sven! One of the youngest brothers screams. Another brother suddenly gets brave and pulls out his pistol. Before he can even raise it past his belt line, I shoot him three times in the head, dropping him to the floor like a wet turd from a man on stilts. The Schlagers howl in rage. 
That's two of my brothers. You're a goddamn dead man, St. James. Sven seethes. I'd hate to kill another one, but I don't think you can count that high. As Sven begins to do a silent count staring at his fingers, I shoot the two bottles of Goldschlager that Manuel is holding, and the contents explode all over the floor. Every whore in the joint hits the ground and tries to scoop up the gold flakes before they disappear beneath the floorboards. I miss the frenzy. I tip my hat to Sven and walk out. Once outside, I see my Chinaman running toward me. He's out of breath and thirsty as shit, per usual. He's trying to speak but doesn't have enough saliva to physically get out the words. I pull a canteen from my saddlebag and give it to my horse to drink. Spit it out, man. I don't have all fucking day. He licks his lips and finally musters up the words. Boss, no more gold. What did you say? Because it sounded like you said, no more gold. He nods his head yes, then passes out from dehydration. I examine his hands and notice that he has all ten fingers. It's definitely my Asian. I throw his unconscious body back up onto my steed as we ride out toward my gold mine. It's a ten-mile ride, which is even longer when you have a foul-smelling half-dead Chinaman bouncing back and forth against you from behinds. When we finally reach my mind, I pull out another canteen out of my saddlebag and pour a small amount of water on my Chinaman's lips. He licks his lips softly and stirs to life, bowing appreciatively toward me. Thank you, boss. Thank you. No problem, I say, as I then proceed to dump the rest of the canteen all over my face, neck, and hands to wash off the trip. Take me inside the mine. We fire up two lanterns and walk inside the filthy mine. Soon. I am further inside than I've ever been. I shine my lantern towards the walls and I'm in awe of what I see. From ceiling to floor are elaborate drawings of people hardcore fucking. There are also drawings of a guy getting killed over and over again in different horrendous ways. The closer I study them, it appears to be the same guy who's getting killed, and the guy in the drawings resembles me. I mean, they look exactly like me. How old do you think these drawings are? Probably a few hours ago. I start to think I was going to die of thirst in this mine. Is this me, the guy who keeps getting killed over and over? The Chinaman sheepishly looks away. Uh, nope. Different guy. Old boss. You guys are the same height, that's all. The further we go, all I see are rocks without a speck of gold to be found. The Chinaman picks up a hammer and pick banging against a wall of solid rock. After a few hits, chunks of rock fall from the wall to the ground. I pick them up and examine them with my lantern. Nothing. Panic and desperation set in, and I sit down inside the mine. For a brief second, I wonder if I can just paint the rocks yellow and pass them off. Maybe no one will know. My Chinaman slinks down next to me. What are we going to do, boss? Well. I have a ton of gold that you've dug up for me over the last couple of years. I suppose I can live off of that. You? Not sure. You've only paid me one cent a day the entire time I've been working for you, which has only afforded me rice and water for my family. Most days, I usually give my ration of water to my children, and I go thirsty. Have you been thirsty? I haven't noticed. Sorry about that. Here you go. I pull out yet another canteen out of my jacket and hand it to him. He smiles, 
genuinely touched. Thank you. No problem. Good luck with everything. When I pat him on the shoulder and walk out, I don't even have to turn back around to know that he appreciated the old empty canteen trick. As I finally make my way out, I ride off into the forest in silence. Usually, I sing Negro spirituals aloud when I ride home from work. But today, my sadness has overtaken me. Making my way out of the trees, I can see my property from the top of the hill. I hear a loud scream that I would recognize anywhere echo from the lowlands. It's Loretta. In a panic, I ride hard down the hill toward the house. A scream like that can only mean one thing. Someone is dead. As I get closer, I see my kids outside crying next to her. She's lying on the ground screaming and pointing to the top of the barn where I see what appears to be a large gold statue swinging from a noose. I run toward her, confused. What the hell is going on? Why are you crying? I can't. It's just... It's totally fucking Mexico out there. Shit got that wild? No. It's our third youngest son. Totally fucking Mexico. He's dead. Sorry. I always forget that we named him on vacation. Where's his body? She points up to the golden statue and screams. That's him. Right there. They dipped him in a pot of melted gold. I look up at totally fucking Mexico hanging there, frozen in solid gold. The rage inside me begins to boil. I'm barely able to get out the words. Who did this? I don't know who they were. They grabbed me when I was inside cooking dinner, but I didn't recognize them. All of them had gold teeth. Listen to me, Lou. I want you to know that I will find the motherfuckers who did this and they will pay with their own lives. My wife stares daggers at me as she sobs uncontrollably, knowing full well I already know who killed him. I hold her in my arms as I look down at my children. All of them are crying except for Daniel, my eldest, who has a look of anger in his eyes like he wants to kill. It's the same look I've had my whole life. Lou, put the kids in their rooms. I want to talk to Daniel alone. All right. She says as she wipes away her tears and takes the other kids upstairs. What happened here today, boy? I asked Daniel. Mom was cooking dinner while me and the boys were playing hide and never come back. All of a sudden, this group of rowdy redneck men came riding out of the woods and scooped up totally fucking Mexico. They said something about you killing their brothers and this was an eye for an eye. One of the brothers was riding with a wagon towing a cauldron. They put a bunch of gold in it, built a fire, waited for it to melt, then threw him in. And they made Mom watch. Our neighbor, Mr. Paulson, didn't help out? Nope. That motherfucker. I'll deal with him later. Women are off limits, obviously, but I killed two of theirs. Why didn't they try to kill two of you? I told you we were hiding and never coming back. Why weren't you coming back? Because we hate you. He slowly pulls a buck knife from behind his back that has blood dripping off of it. Good. You're supposed to hate your father. Why is there blood on your knife? They rode out in the forest past me after they hung totally fucking Mexico. 
I jumped out from behind a tree and got one in the leg. He fell off his horse, but I don't think they noticed. Is he still out there? I think so. He was bleeding real good. All right. I'm proud of you. Go grab the ladder and cut your brother down. I'll see if that man is still out there. When he runs off, I well up with fatherly pride. I don't know if it's possible for a male's balls to drop around eight years old, but I'll be goddamn if that little motherfuckers didn't hit the dirt in that moment. He's growing up to be a badass right before my very eyes. Looking down, I spot a trail of blood on the ground leading into the woods. As I follow it to the tree line, I can hear a male grunting. It's either a man dying, or it's someone in the end stages of a sweet J-off sesh. Up ahead in the trail, I see a half-drunk bottle of Goldschlager with a bloody handprint on it. I stop and pick it up, and the grunting gets louder. Ahead in the distance, I spot one of the fat little Schlager brothers propped up against a tree, tying a knot around a knife wound in his leg with a ripped-off shirt sleeve. I casually stroll over to him and clear my throat loudly. Ahem. <clears throat> Did your hymen break? I ask. The tubby little haunted troll goes to grab his gun, but I quickly draw mine and put a bullet through his hands. His gun flies ten feet backward and he screams in anguish. His face turns pale and I laugh as I take a long pull of Goldschlager. You want some? Me? I'm not a fan of this shit. There's just too much fucking gay in it. You can have it. I pour out all the contents of the bottle into his open wound. He screams and clutches his leg like a beaten woman. The rest is kind of hazy. I don't know what proof that Goldschlager is, but that shit has been sneaking up on me all day. The last thing I remember is him begging for his life, crying and saying he'll do anything I want, along with the requisite please-don't-kill-me bullshit. Obviously, I execute him using every bullet inside my gun, probably starting with non-vital organs first, ending his life really slowly so he feels every single shot fired. The one thing I'm not positive about is if I pissed on his dead body or not afterwards. I'm not kidding. I used to do shit like that just so people had a really fucked up mental experience before they left this earth. Wait, now I remember. Of course I fucking pissed on him. He killed my son. With the sun starting to set behind me, I button my pants and walk out of the forest. Through the kitchen window, I can see my wife and kids sitting at the dinner table preparing to eat. Loretta is valiantly trying to hold it together as tears stream down her face. I take my hat off and walk in and join them at the table. She grabs the hands of our boys sitting on both sides of her and bows her head. Please join hands in a moment of silence for totally fucking Mexico, she says softly. Just as we bow our heads, we hear the rope being cut and a loud gong sound outside from the statue hitting the ground. I cut him down, Dad! Daniel screams out. Loretta loses it and bursts into hysterics. She takes her napkin off her lap and throws it on the table, excusing herself. The rest of us sit in silence as we pick at our meal. I consider saying something to her about burning the veal as she's leaving, but I think better of it at the last second. I'll tell her tomorrow. Daniel walks in and sits across from me at the table. Dad, did you K-I-L-L that guy in the forest? Yeah, and I fucking U-R-I-N-A-T-E-D on him too. He stares at me confused, as do the rest of my children. 
If he's gonna spell out shit like he's a big man, he better know all the big boy words. I try to eat my shitty food, but I can't stop thinking about all the different ways I'm going to fuck up my neighbor, Mr. Balson, when he gets home. I know he works late because each of us only has one neighbor, and you know everything about them. You go to church with them on Sundays, cook each other pies, biscuits, casseroles, all that bullshit. More important, you look after them and make sure they are safe. As a man, you know to look out for your neighbor's wife and kids if they are in trouble. Guy code shit. Instead, my cocksucking neighbor Ron Paulson did nothing, and for that he will feel my fucking wrath. I'd ride down to his office now, but it's best if I catch him right when he walks into his house so I can beat him in front of his wife. This will ensure a mental scar that will stay with him forever and make him feel weaker in her presence every time they're together the rest of their lives. I'm going to enjoy every fucking second of it, too. I know that may sound sick, but you don't just sit there with your hands on your dick while your neighbor's kid is getting dipped into hot gold. My four-year-old, whose name I'm blanking on, looks up at me deep in thought. Dad, should I bring some veal and cabbage out to totally fucking Mexico? He asks. All of my boys look up at me for an answer. For the first time ever, I have to be a real father. My voice cracks, and I'm barely able to muster up the words. He's not very hungry right now. And he wants me to have it. I take his plate and scrape his meal on some mine before I get up. On the way out, I lean down and whisper into Daniel's ear, You're the oldest, so I want you to keep an eye on your brothers tonight. I gotta go ball your mom. She's probably grieving, so don't disturb us unless it's an emergency. Daniel nods silently as I head into the bedroom with my double plate of veal and cabbage. I'm fucking starving, but I know I'm not going to get to eat anytime soon. As I close the bedroom door behind me, a large perfume bottle whizzes by my head and smashes against the top of the door frame. Loretta is crying hysterically, looking for something else to throw. She sees my prized banjo hung on the wall and grabs it by the neck, raising it above her head. I hate you! She screams. Don't you dare throw it! That's my favorite banjo! You did this! You're the reason he died, asshole! I quickly put my dinner plate down on the bed and sprint over to her, grabbing her arms before she can throw the banjo at me. We struggle, then I squeeze a pressure point under her armpit and she slowly releases it, crumpling to the floor, sobbing. I take the banjo and carefully hang it back on the wall where it belongs. You care more about that goddamn banjo than you do your own family! She gets up and starts punching my chest, yelling, You killed him! You killed my third youngest baby boy! He was my favorite! I grab her and pull her tightly into my flexed pecs. I loved him, too. That kid was worth his weight and... Shit. And I knew it the second it came out of my mouth. Loretta tries to shove me away from her, but it's like trying to push a mountain up another mountain. She slaps me hard against the face and I slap her right back. She then spits at me, which I catch with my hand, jamming it down my pants, using it to gently stroke my cock to get it hard. I lift her up against the nightstand while she tries to squirm away. What are you doing? She shouts. Giving you that child that was just taken from you. Time to get pregnant.
I put my finger on her mouth, shushing her, because I'm pretty sure she's going to try and say something. This isn't a time for words. It's a time for lovemaking. The type of lovemaking I participate in when a child dies is different. It's furious and unrestrained. It's the type of love where you use quick, short thrusts while pulling the back of each other's hair with a firm grip. Both parties exert a lot of raw emotions and the sex is intense. You also never break eye contact because in a fucked up way, you're glad you're still alive and you're happy you're not the one who's frozen in gold. Quietly, I ask her if she wants to climax with me. She nods as I scream out into the nights. Your death will not go unavenged, Mexico. We climax hard together. Hers lasting longer than mine, obviously. She falls to the ground on top of me and begins sobbing lightly. I wipe her tears away and tuck her hair back behind her ears. Because it's in my face and I can't see anything. You're definitely pregnant after that. She exhales deeply and says, I'm sure of it. I scoop her up off the floor and lay her on the bed next to my plate of food. Don't eat that, I say as I head over to the wall and grab my banjo. She nods knowingly and positions herself against the headboard holding my dinner plate. I nestle myself between her thighs and begin to play a tune for her as she feeds me my dinner. She sways her head slowly to the rhythm and continues to feed me as I pluck my joe seductively. What happened out there today, St. James? I killed someone that day. What? Can't understand you. Your mouth is full of food. I swallow and look off into the distance. I killed some men today. Also, we might be out of gold. What do you mean, we might be out of gold? The mine is empty. I sent my Chinaman home. We've got enough to live off here for the rest of our lives anyway. Actually, we don't. Those men took all of our gold out of the barn and put it in that cauldron to melt and throw totally fucking Mexico into. I stopped playing my banjo. What? They covered totally fucking Mexico in my own gold? Yes, all of it. And Mr. Paulson did nothing to stop that either? She shakes her head no. Maybe it's not a bad thing, us losing all our gold. You've become a different person since you struck it rich. I miss the old you. We were so much happier when we were simple farmers, working 18 hours a day, all seven days a week, just to live. She knows I hate when she talks about me being poor, but she goes there anyways. I stand up and carefully place my banjo back on the wall before putting my jeans on. Maybe you were. You pretty much just hung out and did the same shit you were doing now, cooking and cleaning, tending to the kids and whatnot. I was out there busting my balls wide open every day just so we could eat shit made out of cornmeal. I put my boots on, throw on a shirt and holster up as I walk out. Where are you going, St. James? To handle shit like a boss. First stop, Mr. Bossens. That fuck should be home by now. On my way out, I see Daniel sharpening his knife on the front porch. He looks up at me as I pass him. Are you going to kill the rest of those men, Pa? No, son. When you kill someone or multiple people in the same family like I did, the rule of thumb is you give them at least a week to grieve before you kill another relative. That's why I'm going to give Mr. Paulson a workout. Can I come with you? Sorry, but you're too young to see something like this go down. 
This is some old school shit that will fuck a man up on the inside. Daniel smiles at me as I hop on my steed and head off into the nights. This is a revenge ride, so there's really no need to explain in great detail how my pecs are flexing at max level as I glide on my horse alongside the river down to Mr. Paulson's house. I've got other shit on my minds. I do, however, manage to take a glance at my reflection in the water and see my triceps ripple as I hold the reins. They're as perfect as you can imagine. Chapter 6. Time to take a shit in my own hands. I think that sentence is wrong. Riding up to Mr. Paulson's house, I laughed to myself at the size of it. Bullshit realtors would call it modest, but let's call a spade a spade here. The fucking thing looks like elves or cobblers live in it. As I'm tying up my steed, I notice that even his horse is shittier than mine. My steed resembles a goddamn racehorse. His looks like it's been giving ghost tours to carriages full of tourists downtown for 30 years. I reach down and move the eating trough and put it in front of my steed. You can fuck the other horse when you're done eating if you want to. I left enough slack in those reins, I whisper. He winks at me as I knock on the door. A woman in her early 30s, Sheila Paulson, answers and is immediately taken aback by my presence. She quickly tries to fuss with her hair to pretty herself up, but let me tell you, she's giving you a five back when you hand her a ten. Trying to fix her hair at the last second isn't going to make her a six. (laughs) Why, St. James, Ron didn't tell me you were coming over. I know. You would have made yourself look prettier. Did Ron tell you anything about what happened today up at my place? No. I heard some screaming, but Ron told me to hide in the bedroom and put a pillow over my face. He said we shouldn't get involved. Did he now? Where is Ron? As soon as the question leaves my lips, Ron appears through the back door of the house with a newspaper under his arm holding a lit lantern. He's a taller, gimpy, balding man in his 40s who owns the town printing press. What you're picturing in your head right now is exactly what he looks like. His face freezes in fear at the sight of me standing in his living room. Hey, Ron, how was your day? Uh, it, 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 it was good, you know. I was just reading over tomorrow's newspaper before it goes to print in the morning. Reading it over a nice hearty deuce, I see. Well, no, I was just out back reading it by lantern. May I see it? Sure, he says, somewhat surprised. He hands me the paper, and I read over it quickly, shaking my head in mock disappointments. I then hold it up for him to see the entire front page, tilting it from side to side. It's strange. I don't see a headline in here that says, Four-year-old boy killed from being dipped into scalding hot gold while neighbor watches and does nothing. Probably because that would be a run-on sentence. You can't join two independent clauses. He cuts himself off and quickly looks away. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. You don't? That's odd. Because your wife said you made her hide in the bedroom and put a pillow over her face while the screaming was going on up at my house today. That screaming could have been for anything, St. James. You and your wife have sex a lot. Normally, that excuse would fly because it's true. But did you not hear a little boy's voice crying out as well? You know I never fuck directly in front of my children. If you had any children of your own, you would understand. We've been trying, St. James, but Sheila just can't. She can't? 
or you can'ts. St. James, that's not fair. It's hot in here. You mind if I take my shirt off, Ron? No, please don't. It's too late. I've already taken off my shirt and placed it on his coat rack. Ron nervously shakes his head as Sheila licks her lips slightly. I'm not going to lie. I may have thrown a half inch of butter on the ride over just to accentuate my physique. Deliberately, I begin to take off my belts loop by loop. As the belt slithers through each rung, Ron is visibly shaking like a man with Parkinson's holding a set of wind chimes. Once I've successfully pulled my belt all the way through, I snap it in the air. I crack my neck back and forth before slowly walking over to Ron. Out of my peripheral vision, I spot a bowl of water to wash up in, and I dip my belt into it. Ron puts his hands up in front of his face. St. James, please, sir. Oh, look at you. You're putting your hands up to protect yourself. I wish someone would have protected my little boy today before he was melted into hot fucking gold. Ron flinches and covers his head as I unleash my belt right across the fat part of his back. He buckles to the floor and lets out a high-pitched preteen white girl scream. I bet Daniel is on the front porch back home smiling, listening to this little pig shit cry. Ron balls himself up into the phenol position on the ground, preparing for the worst, which is coming. I rise up again and again, continuing to beat him with my wet belt. In my blind rage, I look over and see Sheila hiding behind a door, peeking out at me. I notice her smirking through clenched teeth. Each time I beat Ron, she seems more into it, as if she's rooting for me. She bites her lips seductively. You enjoy watching me humiliate him like this? Yes. She says softly. Ron looks at her with disdain, but she ignores him and starts to undo her dress with a zeal she probably hasn't experienced since she was 19. Her dress hits the floor and Sheila shows no shame. Most women her age would try and cover up, but she doesn't even flinch. She may be a five on the outside, but goddamn if she hasn't been hiding a seven body underneath her colonial dress all these years. I want you to fuck me like I deserve it. She says. No, I'm going to fuck you like Ron deserves it. Ron begs through muffled tears. Please, I beg you, I can't take this. He didn't have a hard time hearing my son beg for his life, so me fucking his wife in front of him on the family kitchen table that they eat from every night is only fair. I take Ron's arms and legs and methodically hogtie this fat fucker on the floor with my belt. After I'm satisfied that he can't move, I push him over so he's on his side, facing up at the table. Taking two long, bigfoot strides over to Sheila, I lift her up and insert myself into her at the same time. We crash against the kitchen wall and make out like two Mexican teenagers underneath a picnic table at a quinceanera. Butts and pans hanging from above crash to the floor. Without looking down, I kick them at Ron while I grab Sheila's surprisingly firm ass as I walk fucker over to the table. With my free arm, I clear off a delicious dinner of sautéed carrots and a skirt steak that she has made for Ron. The plates shatter right in front of his face as well. His sobbing isn't enough for me. It's time for the real emotional scarring. 
I begin to fuck Sheila like Ron never could in a million goddamn years. With her back on the table, I lift her legs up above my shoulders. For Ron's wife, because I respect her, I go with the jackhammer because I want to maintain a controlled amount of penetration with rhythmic timing. I also want Ron to know that this move is part of my regular arsenal and that I can maintain it for long periods of time, something that he could never do. Again, I cannot stress how important my sexual precision is in moments like these. It adds years of destruction to someone's conscience. With a decent sweat worked up, I walk over to the wood-burning oven, still full bone, and open the door so it gets even hotter in here. We're now licking each other's sweat and biting one another. Sheila asked me to choke her, and of course I blush. Just as she can't take it anymore, I tell her I'm going to climax with her. Climaxing with someone's wife in front of them is the final nail in the coffin. I look over to Ron, who is sweating profusely and crying. He just wants this to end, but I won't let it quite yet. I snap my fingers to get his full attention. I want you to listen to me, Ron. As I climax, I want you to look me in the eyes. Do you understand? Through his crying, he weakly says, Okay. With eye contact now established, I pick up the pace of my thrust and apply more pressure to Sheila's throat. She starts moaning like she's from a foreign country. As I climax, I hear my steed climax outside as well, which makes me happy to know that my horse fucked Ron's horse too. With our eyes still fixated on one another's, I squint intensely and whisper to Ron, I now live inside your mind forever. Mentally and physically broken, he closes his eyes and he blacks out from the heat. I rise up off Sheila and thank her, but she has no words. She instead takes my hand and begins blessing herself, sign of the cross style, before I unwrap my belt from around Ron's arms and legs. His limbs hit the floor and he gingerly rolls over. Standing over him, I slap his face with my hand until his eyes open. I'll see you at the funeral this weekend, Sheila. It's potluck, so if you could bring some potato salad, that would be amazing. Of course. See you then. Tell Loretta she's in our thoughts and prayers. I will. I throw on my clothes and walk out of the front door just in time to see my horse dismount Ron's horse. We both nod at each other for a job well done. As I'm pulling away, Sheila waves at me from the front porch. With the revenge factor taken care of with Ron, my mind shifts to my gold problem in killing the rest of the Schlager brothers. Per usual, I stop by the river outside my house to wash off my dick and balls. I only wish my dead son was able to be downriver so he could taste this. I dunk my entire body underwater and sit at the bottom of the river. A bright orb of light shines in front of my face in the water. I wipe my eyes and refocus, finally making out the image. It's totally fucking Mexico. He's staring straight at me, almost looking through me. In a tree of life whisper, I hear him say the words, I forgive you, Father. I can taste this water. Fuck yeah. That makes me happy. His ghost then high-fives me before vanishing. 
I smile at peace with myself and the life decisions I've made. I knew he'd understand. Realizing I've been underwater for almost eight minutes, I rise to the surface, gasping for air. I see the moon shining down on his dead gold statue out in the yard, so I throw an index finger in the air out of respect, like when Kobe left the court after dropping 81 on the raptors. Walking out of the river, I air dry up to the house where I see Daniel waiting for me on the front porch. He nods at me with a knowing smirk. To answer your question, no. I'm not uncomfortable being buck naked in front of my sons, either. I want them to know what they will look like in adulthood. It's a lot better than what any of their bullshit female teachers could teach them about puberty and becoming a man. This is the real shit. Hanging brains right in front of his face. Daniel knows this and respects it. I know what you did out at Ron's farm, Dad. You do? He nods his head. Yeah. I just want you to know, I shut the window so Mom wouldn't hear. <laughs> Thank you. That's what a real man does. I'm proud of you. My dong grazes against his head as I lean in and hug him. Slightly embarrassed, I take a step back, realizing this is the first time I've ever hugged him. I take a seat next to him on the porch and grab a small tobacco tin that rests on the step. Shaking the remaining water off my hands, I pull out a couple rolling papers and hand roll us two cigarettes, just like my dad did for me around eight years old. He strikes a match off the porch and lights our smokes. With his first inhale, he coughs a little, and I laugh at him and call him a bitch. It's one of those magical moments in life where you're able to sit down buck naked on the porch with your son after you've just fucked your neighbor's wife and share a smoke. <laughs> Look at you trying to buff tough. I love it, I say to him. Are these things healthy for me? Daniel asks as he looks at the cigarettes. A lot healthier than that bullshit milk your mom gives you. When's the last time you were at the doctor's office and he wasn't smoking? Never. Exactly. Now when's the last time you rolled into the doctor's office and he was relaxing, drinking a warm glass of milk? Never. That was knowledge I just gave you. I guess you're right. What are you going to do about the Schlagers, Dad? Kill everyone in sight and take their gold? I have to assess the situation and see how many there are. I don't want any more of you guys getting offed. I'm a fucking amazing human being, but I'm only one man. But yes, more than likely I'll start killing everyone real soon. If you need any help or a human shield or anything, I'm in. <laughs> I don't think that will be necessary, but it's nice to know you do something like that for me. I'm tough, Dad. I will prove myself to you. You already have. I saw that schlager you took out in the woods. Nice fucking work. See you tomorrow, cowboy. I stand up and take one last drag off my cigarette before flicking it off into the yard. With the calmness of a rapist, I ease up the stairs of the house and sneak into bed with Loretta. I can still hear her sobbing as she stares out of the window at the golden statue of our dead son in the yard. I'm going into town tomorrow to make funeral arrangements. Do you want to come with me? I ask. No. I can't bear to see those tiny coffins. Have you thought about cremation? We sure could use the gold right about now. Don't you fucking dare. Our son deserves a proper burial. Okay. 
We'll table that combo for the nights. The following morning, we eat our breakfast in silence, and for the first time in forever, it does not consist of gold. Have you ever eaten eggs or pancakes without gold on them? Let me tell you, it sucks. This is the first taste of poverty in a few years, and I'm not fucking happy about it. I throw down my fork and head out, stopping only to rub the golden statue of my dead son for good luck. Riding through the town street, I notice more people staring at me than usual. I look down to see if I have forgotten to place my cock inside my jeans, which happens more often than you think. This time we're all clear. Upon closer examination, I see everyone holding the morning newspaper. The headline reads, Four-year-old boy killed from being dipped into scalding hot gold. And the article is by Ron Paulson. See what deep-dicking someone's wife will get you? Respect. Men tip their hats toward me in silence as I pull up in front of Curly's funeral parlor. When I walk inside, I'm immediately greeted by the owner, Curly, a burly 65-year-old man who sports a large, gray handlebar mustache. His name is ironic because he doesn't have a single hair on his head. This son of a bitch is also way too fucking chipper about owning a funeral parlor. How are you today, sir? He asked with a pep. Well, I'm at a goddamn funeral parlor. You? Are you looking for something for you or someone else? No, it's not for me. I'm probably going to live forever. My four-year-old son just passed away. Curly shoots a look over to a newspaper laid out next to the register. He nods and looks down, wringing his hands nervously. Yeah, I'm real sorry to hear about that. I read about it in the paper this morning. We have some nice coffins along the wall over here. I point to a small-sized one in the corner. How much for that one? One hundred dollars. That's an excellent choice for your child. Oh, <laughs> that one isn't for my child. That one is in case my dick and balls get detached or just fall off from my body from too much usage. I want my package to have a proper burial as well. Um, okay. No, my boy is going to need an adult-sized coffin. The gold obviously added a lot of extra height and width to him. I understand. The adult ones are $50 more. I go to pull some gold from my pockets when suddenly it dawns on me that I don't have any more. Nothing. Not even a little nugget hiding in my boot. Shit. I totally forgot that I threw the rest of it on the ground at the deed office. Panic sets in as my eyes dart around the room. I'm sorry, I don't have any gold on me right now. It's all on my son. Well, I feel really embarrassed. This is like being bald and having a name like Curly. Am I right? <laughs> Curly laughs loudly and wipes his bald head with a handkerchief trying to make me laugh. It's totally fake and canned. Following up that gem, he does a shitty little dance like he's a tiny monkey, which is also awkward and forced. As I'm watching this charade unfold, that's when two sacked plums smack me square in the chin. Holy shit. This is what polite people do to poor to make them feel comfortable. This is the kind of shit that used to happen to me before I was rich. My heart starts racing and I blurt out, I'll be back, sir. Just let me go home and get some more gold. I definitely have a lot more of it. Gold, that is. Stacks of it. I'm just grieving. I'm going to grab a drink and get my mind right. 
Curly takes his silver dollar out of his pocket and flips it to me. Here, the first one is on me. I can't imagine what you're going through right now. I snatch the coin out of the air and stare at it, lost in thought. Not only did someone try to cheer me up for being poor, but now he's giving me money. That's my thing. I throw money at people. Usually it's followed by laughter and the phrase, Here you go, baroque dick, or thanks, or... <laughs> now this bald son of a bitch is treating me like a shoeshine boy? I debate throwing the coin back in his face, then pissing my surname all over the coffins, but the sad truth is, I can't. Because I really want a fucking drink. Feeling completely out of my element, I catch myself bowing to him like a grateful butler before turning and quickly leaving. As I walk down Main Street, the townspeople's looks toward me seem more prevalent. Instead of thinking that everyone is looking at me for having the dead child dipped in gold, I begin to wonder if they pity me because I'm poor. Paranoia set in, and I pulled my hat down over my eyes as I walked toward the saloon, trying not to make eye contact with anyone. Luckily, it's so early in the morning that there are not many patrons inside, and I'm able to take a seat at the bar alone. I could really use a good horse sesh right now, but I'll be goddamned if I'm going to end up like one of those poor bastards who's getting an H.J. underneath a table in the open for a quarter. Manuel comes over and greets me warmly. I notice an open newspaper on the bar, and I know what's coming. Sorry about your son, St. James. It's fine. I have six more, and probably one on the way after last night. Just give me a shot of whiskey. He grabs a bottle into the bar and pours me a shot. Without looking at him, I take the silver dollar out and slide it across the bar. From behind me, a hand slams down on top of the coin. I immediately grab my gun and turn to see the eldest Schlager brother, Sven, standing over me with a shit-eating grin. I'm not kidding. There is actual human shit in his teeth. People eat their own shit for fun in West Virginia, which is where the phrase originated. He looks down at the silver dollar and laughs. <laughs> well, the famous St. James Street James is paying in silver. Ain't that a sight? Something happened to all your gold? Gold is overrated these days. People act like they're made out of it. Knowing I would run into the Schlagers, I came prepared. I pull out a small glass jar that I tucked inside my boot and slam it on top of the bar. A set of two testicles wobble around inside the jar. Sven looks at me curiously. What the fuck are those? Those are your brother's nuts. I'd ask him if he wants them back, but he's dead. Sven turns around toward a table in the back and starts counting his brothers on his fingers. He seems confused. Finally, he just yells out, Hey, we lose another brother? All of the brothers start counting one another. It's a shit show. By my estimate, there are somehow 17 Schlager brothers. The brothers have almost doubled from yesterday. Jesus, man. How many brothers do you have? As fast as our sisters can make them. Is that supposed to be menacing? Because it sounds fucking disgusting. Disgusting for you? We don't die, we multiply. That's what West Virginia does all up in your butthole. I quick draw my gun and put it under his chin. There has never been a man up in my butthole, understand? All at once I can hear the sounds of guns being drawn. I turn slowly and see a wide variety of different guns pointed at me. 
pistols, shotguns, even a few muskets. One of the brothers is holding what appears to be a sharpened tree branch. Manuel pulls out a shotgun from underneath the bar and fires it into the ceiling. Hey, boys, I don't want any more blood spilled in my bar. I nod and put my gun away, as do the schlagers. The one guy with a sharpened tree branch throws it on the ground. Out of respect for you and your beautiful whorehouse establishment, I'll go, Manny. I say as I take the shot of whiskey and slam the glass down on the bar. On the way out, I I fuck the shit out of Sven. I'll see you soon, I say, holding up seven fingers in his face. Do you want us to come to your son's funeral? That's sweet. But you guys probably would be disappointed. My wife isn't serving shit for food afterwards. I was thinking we could just bring 14 carrots, he says. Sven and his brothers laugh like it's the funniest thing they've ever heard. I stop at the double doors, briefly thinking about turning and killing them right then and there. Better judgment gets the best of me, and I keep walking toward my steed. The ride home feels like an acid trip. All I can see in front of me is Sven's shit-eating grin and Curly's look of surprise when I reach into my empty pockets, unable to pay for my kid's funeral. My world is crumbling. I don't want to go back to being a farmer or a guy who has to get H.J.'s out in the middle of the bar in front of everyone. The glow of the sun from my kid's dead golden statue hits me in the face and brings me back to life as I pull up in front of my house. I wonder if Loretta would be pissed if I just chopped off a pinky. That would pay for the funeral at least five or six whorehouse sessions. That's all I keep thinking as she hugs me when I walk into the house. How did it go? Did you pick out a nice casket? Well, the good news is, it doesn't cost an arm and a leg. But it will probably cost a pinky. No, absolutely not. They took all of our gold and melted it onto our child. We have nothing. How do you expect me to pay for it? I don't know. You're the man of the house. Figure it out. Dinner's ready. I throw my cowboy hat against the wall in frustration. Women never fully realize that shit costs money. On the kitchen table, I notice a giant bowl of cabbage stew. I'm now officially living in Poverty, USA. Staring at my stew, I glance up at the now-empty gold shaker and see Sven's fat face pop up inside of it. He begins laughing at me again with that shit-eating grin. Just as I hit my breaking point, the worst thought I've ever had enters my mind. Look. I've done a lot of fucked up things in my life, but this may be the worst. Shocked that I'm even considering this, I push my bowl of stew away from me and excuse myself from the table. I'm gonna go outside and have a smoke, I mumble. Loretta doesn't even look at me as I leave. Grabbing my tin on the front porch, I roll myself a heater and stare straight ahead directly at the outhouse. As I smoke, I think about how much gold we've all consumed as a family over time and how many times collectively we have all gone to the bathroom out there. (laughs) There has to be a small fortune underneath that crapper. I take a long, deep drag on the cigarette and exhale knowingly. Fuck me. Sometimes a man has to do what the fuck he has to do in order to survive. I light a lantern with my cigarette before taking one last drag. Unenthusiastically, I take my shirt off and tie it around my face, taking in one last deep breath before walking toward the outhouse. 
Let it be known that today is the day I'd take shit into my own hands. This is the end of the disc. The audiobook continues on the next disc. Chapter 7 The strength of a man can only be measured by how much he can lift. The following morning, I'm awakened by the sounds of flies swarming inside a small metal bucket next to me as I lay sprawled out in the barn. The stench is so raw that I throw up within seconds. I cover my nose and look inside the bucket, seeing a stack of little chunks of gold covered in my family's shit. Sweet fucking Jesus. That wasn't a nightmare. I actually did this. I stagger down to the river, grab a bucket full of water, and rinse the remaining shit off with my fingers. There aren't a whole lot of words to express how vile and disgusting this is. When the gold is finally separated, I put the chunks inside a small leather pouch and tuck it into the pocket of my jeans. I bump into Loretta as she walks out of the house with a large basket full of laundry. Why did you sleep in the barn last night? She asks. I had some shit to sort out. I'm going into town to get the casket and post an obituary after I wash up. She stares at me suspiciously. How are you going to pay for the casket? Don't worry. I'm a man. I figured it out. Go tell Daniel I want him to come with me after I take a bath, will you? She looks at me surprised and says, Okay. After I wash the shit off me, I head over to the barn to tie a covered wagon to my steed. Daniel runs out of the house excitedly. He's wearing jeans and cowboy boots and holding his shirt like a young motherfucking me. You wanted me to come with you, Dad? Yeah. On three conditions. One, let's not be so fucking excited. We're going to pick out a casket for your dead brother, so let's ease up on the smiles. Two, start working out your pecs. Seven years old is the proper age to start getting ripped, so you should probably start an aggressive push-up routine as early as tomorrow. Three, do you know how to fire a gun? Because if not, it's time you learns. Get in. I throw him down a holster with two pistols in it. He tries to suppress his excitement as he hops up into the wagon. Normally, I wouldn't take my kid with me into town, but this time I might need an extra man on the trigger. An hour later, our wagon rolls down Main Street, and the first thing I see is a couple of drunken Schlager brothers stumbling around. They point up to me and laugh. I stop the wagon and stand up, revealing my two pearl-handled pistols. Are we fucking doing this? Who wants to get wet? The two drunken brothers immediately back down. Daniel looks shaken, but I notice his right hand tapping one of his guns. This little motherfucker is clutch, and I like his heart. Someone like Ron, his first instinct would be to hide in the covered wagon, throw a scarf on his face, and fake a British accent in a woman's voice like Mrs. Doubtfire to avoid the sitch. Not my boy. I snap the reins on my steed, and we continue riding to Curly's funeral parlor. Daniel looks up at me as we pull in. Those men look like the guys who killed totally fucking Mexico. They were. Those are the Schlager brothers. Why didn't you kill them? There are at least 15 more of them. I don't want to have to put another son in the ground for at least another year. Your mom couldn't handle that. Fuck that shit, Dad. We can take them. <laughs> I like your language. We'll have our revenge soon enough. Come on. I want to introduce you to a bald man named Curly. As we walk into the parlor, Curly greets us with a wave and rubs his head again like we're old bros. 
He pulls a stick of rock candy out of his pocket that is covered in lint and hands it to Daniel. What is it with old people and hard candy? They love that shit as much as magic tricks. Curly kneels down to Daniel and pinches his face. Is this your boy, St. James? No. The dead one is at home. This is another one of my kids, Daniel. Curly leans down to eye level with Daniel and says, Hey, Daniel, you want to see a magic trick? What did I tell you? Fucking magic tricks. I tell Daniel to fake a smile and go along with it because I respect old people. This guy was probably on the Mayflower or some shit, so I nudge Daniel, who looks up at him and nods eagerly. Oh, yes, sir. I'd love to see a magic trick. Okay. Watch the casket. Curly walks over to the first adult-sized casket along the wall and opens it, revealing that there's nothing inside of it. He then closes it quickly and pulls a wand out of his pocket. Abracadabra! He says as he taps it with his wands. Curly opens up the casket again and we see a giant clown jump out holding a live cobra. Daniel screams his face off and runs out the front door as Curly laughs. Even I don't know what the fuck to say. The clown laughs hysterically then walks toward the back shuffling his plastic shoes along the way. Who is that? Curly laughs and said, That's my son. He's hilarious. They grow up so fast. Hard to believe he's 49. How long has he been hiding in there? About 14 or 15 hours. Totally worth it. You should have seen your faces. <laughs> Anywho, you here for the caskets? I'm sure as fuck not here for a cobra. I'll take the two that we were talking about yesterday. I pull out my leather pouch full of gold nuggets and flip him a small chunk. Curly catches it and holds it up toward the light examining it. He looks at it suspiciously, then turns back toward me. You know, it looks like gold, but it smells like shit. Since my boy died, I hide all of my gold up my own ass. <laughs> you can't be too careful these days. Sorry. No need to apologize. My wife does the same thing with all of her jewelry after I leave the house every morning. We laugh and share a moment. Curly is a weird fucker, but I dig his spirits. Peering out from the front door, I see Daniel hiding underneath my wagon outside. Curly, will you grab my boy and load the caskets up for me? I need to head down to the printing press to give them my son's obituary to run for the funeral proceedings. Of course. Before you go, I want you to pick a card. Curly says as he pulls a deck of cards out of his suit pocket. Begrudgingly, I pull one out. Okay, got it. Put it back in the deck and remember it. I'll tell you what it was when I get back. Can't wait. I find myself with new life in my step as I head down to Ron's place of business. I'm excited to see the beating I gave him. From the street, I notice a sign on Ron's office door that says out to lunch, but I see that fat little pig shit eating a sandwich alone in the back. There's no way he'd go out to face the public for lunch after what I did to him. I knock loudly on the window to get his attention. I see you, Ron. Let me in or else I'll fucking drag you out into the street and beat you for all to see. When I start to unbuckle my belt, Ron bolts upright from his chair and scurries toward the door. He quivers at the sight of the sunlight. His face is more swollen than Quasimodo and the hunchback of Notre Dame. I smile at him with a I-fucked-your-wife look on my face. Hi, Ron. You look well. Can I come in?
I need you to print an obituary for my dead kid. You know, the one you did nothing to help from being murdered. Okay, just please promise you won't hurt me. The only thing I can promise is that I won't fuck your wife today if you do what I ask. Now open the fucking door. Ron obliges and lets me in. He walks me to the back of the shop where his workbench is set up. Newspapers are strewn everywhere and his hands are stained with ink. It's depressing as shit in here. I bet Ron keeps a pet mouse in a shoebox and takes it out and feeds it sandwich crusts while they talk about great literary works. As Ron clears some old newspapers off a chair for me to sit down in, I notice a handful of breadcrumbs under his desk. I fucking knew it. So do you have an obit prepared, or do you want me to write something? He asked. Well, Ron, obituaries are never really prepared, but yes, I have something written down. I pull a small note out of my pocket and hand it to him. Please read this aloud. Beads of sweat start to form from around his temples as he clears his throat. St. James, I can't. Read it with precision and passion, Ron. Word for fucking word. Fine. God. Totally fucking Mexico Street James. Born sometime in 1849-ish, I think. Died July 18, 1853. Totally fucking Mexico was four. And he didn't get to do a lot of shit. So obviously his resume isn't that impressive. He was well hung, a trait he inherited from his father. Just like his dad, he had trouble keeping his dong inside a cloth diaper as a baby. He loved to eat gold, so it's ironic that he died being dipped in it. Our bitch neighbor Ron did nothing to stop the gruesome attack and let him die. Ron paid the ultimate price for that, believe me. Totally fucking Mexico was survived by his six brothers, Mother Loretta and his father-slash-loving-husband-slash-mentor of young women between the ages of 18 and 25-slash-gunfighter-slash-sexual-provocateur, St. James Street James. A memorial service is scheduled for Saturday at 2 p.m. at the Street James Estate. It's potluck, so bring a dish. A real dish. Don't be the asshole that only brings bread or a fucking condiment. Clothing optional for women, BYOB2. Park your carriages wherever. What do you think? I ask him. Um, it's, it's good. Do you have to put the part in there about the bitch neighbor? Yes, it's mandatory. You're lucky I didn't write the part about me fucking your wife in there. Have a nice day, Ron. On the way out, I fake a backhand slap toward Ron just to keep him fearful of me. He cowers like a sniveling bitch. <laughs> I shake my head and grin at him. I want that obit done in a timely manner. Don't spend all day making tiny business suits for your fucking mouse. Mr. Wickens is a hamster. I slam the door in his face the second I leave. He immediately locks it and slumps to the floor. I can hear him sobering and whispering prayers in Latin. Down the street, I notice Daniel and Curly struggling to load the two heavy caskets into the wagon. Eh, I'm sure they got it. A whore passes by me and whistles as I feel the gold in my leather pouch shake in my jeans. She's a four in the daylight with the highest possible score being a six in extreme darkness after an entire bottle of pick-your-fucking-choice. Normally, I wouldn't even consider her, but I've got some time to burn. She grabs my dick over my jeans, leans in, and says, 
heard about your kid. I'm really sorry. You need to take a load off? Specifically in my mouth? How much? Quarter ounce of AU. I point to a large piece of plywood on the ground with a decent sized hole in it. Okay, but grab this plywood. Wait two minutes and then meet me in the back alley. A couple minutes later, she walks back awkwardly holding the plywood. I stand it upright on the ground and instruct her to kneel behind it on the other side. She looks at me puzzled. Why? It's because I can't bear to look at your face. Fair enough. Surprisingly, she gets where I'm coming from. I unzip my pants, stick my dick through the hole, and fellatio ensues in broad daylights. Side note there's nothing better than a blowjob from a four. They've always had to overcompensate their whole lives, so they know how to suck a dick. A group of butchers slaughtering a cow stop mid slice and walk out of their shop to see what's going on. Hey, man, what the hell are you doing? One of them asks. I'm getting my dick sucked through this hole. Why? She's a four. They all nod knowingly. Smart. That makes total sense. Have a good one, one of them says. The hooker stops blowing me for a second and turns around. If you boys want, you can all line up and stick your dicks through the hole. I'll suck off all of you for the same price. It's hard to turn down a cheap beach even from a four. A line quickly begins to form behind me. Look, I've invented a lot of great things in my life, but to this day, I'm still most proud of inventing the first glory hole. I haven't applied for a patent on it, but the patent office said that it would be difficult to enforce since anyone could cut a hole in anything and suck a dick through it. For personal pride, though, I want her on the record that I did indeed invent this. After we all get sucked off, we laugh and share a bottle of whiskey together. At the heart of it, a glory hole is a communal entity that is meant to be enjoyed by a group. Our jovial celebration is cut short by the sounds of gunshots followed by a loud scream. I race around the corner and see a dead clown shot in the chest lying face down on the street in front of my wagon. It's Curly's son. His eyes are closed, but ironically there are open eyes painted on top of his eyelids. It's pretty fucking creepy. The two drunk Schlager brothers from earlier tugging on the coffins trying to rip them out of my covered wagon. I see Daniel lying on top protecting them from being taken. Give us these coffins, boy! We're gonna bury you and your daddy alive! One of them shouts. The other Schlager pulls out a gun and aims it at Daniel. I quick draw my pistols and shoot both of them down in the streets. Pedestrians scramble and run for cover as I run over to Daniel. Moments later, Curly comes running out of the funeral parlor, his face painted like a sad clown with fake tears streaming down his cheeks. He leans down and holds his dead son in his arms, screaming skyward. Why did you have to take him? Why? Suddenly, Daniel's eyes grow wide. He pulls out both of his guns and aims them slightly to the sides of my head, firing two shots behind me. I turn to see two more Schlager brothers fall to the street, dead. In the distance, I see the remaining 13 coming out of the whorehouse. Within moments, we're about to be in an all-out street war. Imagine being in the middle of a gunfight against 17 dudes and realizing that your only backup is an almost 8-year-old boy who has just fired a gun for the first time in his life and a 70-year-old man with his face painted like a sad clown. 
Holy shit, we're fucked. Or so I thought. I'm about to learn firsthand what old man strength is. For you novices, old man strength is something that can't be taught. It's not something you're born with. There is no amount of weight you can lift to achieve it, and it's the only thing in this world that can't be bought. Old man strength is a certain strength that is acquired over a long period of time, typically by men who have seen some hard-ass shit in their day. The pilgrims had it. Men of the Revolutionary War had it. The men of the Gold Rush definitely have it, mixed with a dash of insanity as well. There's nothing to do out here, so you do any fucked up thing you can think of to fight off the boredom of living in a mostly undeveloped land. Only one thing in this world trumps old man's strength. We'll get to that in a minute. Curly shows me exactly what old man's strength truly is. With the Schlager brothers rapidly approaching, I draw my guns and look over at Curly to warn him of the imminent danger. He nods and shakes his head with a look of rage I have rarely seen in a man's eyes. Kneeling down, he kisses the forehead of his dead clown's son. Grab your boy and stand back, he says to me in a deep, guttural voice. With that kind of look in his eyes, I didn't even question him. I grab Daniel out of the back of the wagon and pull him down to the ground. Faster than a goose shits, Curly unhooks my steed from the wagon, then grabs a wheel and lifts the entire thing above his head. He flips it over on his side, shielding us from the Schlager brothers' line of fire. That's old man strength, son. That wagon probably weighs 400 pounds, and that motherfucker just deadlifts it without even chalking up first. I tell my steed to run for cover as the three of us sit behind the wagon as shots are continuously fired at us. Curly pulls out two sawed-off street howitzers and begins loading shells from his vest pockets. He doesn't even look while he's loading. Instead, he's focused on us. <laughs> I don't even know where the guns were hidden on him. That's how fucking boss he is. Cover me. I'm going out there. You can't go out there alone, Curly. There's too many men, goddammit. They just killed my only son, St. James. I don't have anything else to live for now. Either you're in or you're out. I look over at Daniel Nod, then say, The Street James boys are in. He nods back appreciatively, then slowly stands up from behind the wagon and walks out into the middle of the street. The Schlager brothers stop firing for a second and admire the bravado of this man. Also, it's pretty fucking shocking to see a 70-year-old dude painting like a sad clown walking down the street with two loaded shotguns. Curly pulls the hammers back with his thumbs and yells, These are the tears of a clown, motherfuckers! He unloads both shotguns into the chest of two brothers. In unison, Daniel and I stand up and start blasting the shit out of as many brothers as we can. Curly recocks and blows the fuck out of two more as we keep firing. Six brothers are down, but there are eight more left and Curly is out of ammo. Sven steps out into the shadows with a huge smile on his face. He pulls a shotgun out of his overcoat and aims it at Curly. Daniel and I try to fire at him, but we're out of bullets too. All we can do is stand there and watch as Sven takes his time cocking his gun. Let's turn that frown upside down, he says. Sven calmly blows Curly away with a shotgun blast to the stomach, which causes him to fly backward out of his boots. No lie, the man is physically blown out of his boots. 
As I watch his shoeless body fly back in the air, all I keep thinking is what a shitty line that is to die to. The last thing this hardcore SOB dies to is a phrase that was used by a local toy store down the street? Fuck that. Curly deserves better, and I'll be goddamn if I'm going to let him go out like that. I reload as quickly as I can and ask Daniel for his gun so I can reload his as well. Come on out, St. James. I'll tell you what. If you come out peacefully and surrender, we'll just hang you and let your boy go. Hell, for all you've done for this town, we might even name this here road after you. Main Street, James, has a nice ring to it. <laughs> My temp begins to rise. Now he's trying to kill me to a shitty pun as well? Nope, not this guy, and not in this fucking lifetime. Sven fires a shot at me as I try to steal a quick glance over the top of my wagon. I duck at the last second, narrowly avoiding it. As I observe my surroundings, there's only one way out of this, and it ain't pretty. I walk out into the street and start firing with both guns blazing, trying to take out as many as I can. Daniel's voice suddenly cries out, I got your back, Dad! Stay there, Daniel! By the time I look back toward him, he's already sprinted out in front of me in the street, blasting both guns. This crazy son of a bitch wasn't kidding. He's using himself as a human shield. We're killing a lot of schlagers, but Daniel is getting lit up faster than a spliff on April 20th at 4.19 p.m. As a father, it's a hopeless feeling when you realize there's nothing you can do to help your child in a moment like this. At least I bought two caskets, so I'm cool on that front. I scoop up his lifeless body and retreat behind a large wooden post in front of Curly's parlor. Peering out, I see only one schlager still standing, and it's Sven. He fires a shot at me that hits the post and ricochets off into the distance. I lean down and kiss Daniel goodbye in the forehead and look up towards Sven, filled with the same rage Curly had. One-on-one, -on -one, this man is going to fucking die, so I might as well put on a display of dominance for the entire town. Seven. It looks like it's just you and me now. How about we just settle this out in the middle of the street like gentlemen? That's fine by me. And it's Sven, by the way. You keep throwing an extra E in there. Really? I'm not hearing it. Once I'm finally reloaded, I peek out from behind the post and see him slowly walking out toward the middle of the street where I casually join him. Patrons also start to walk out of businesses and line up to see this epic showdown. Sixteen dead Schlager brothers litter the street, and Sven and I are literally stepping over bodies to get closer to one another. We eventually end up about twenty yards apart before we stop. Staring each other down, both of us put one hand on our guns. I notice a slight twitch in Sven's right index finger. It's evident that he's nervous from everything he's heard about me. I would be too. Time to add water and make my legend grow. I tell you what, you can have the first shot, I say to him. The entire crowd that has gathered gasps collectively. Women swoon. Other men's dicks get hard just because they wish they could do shit like this. I tear off my shirt for good measure to get one more set of gas from the ladies in the crowd. Three different women faint. One gets her period. You can't be serious, he says in shock. Only one way to find out. Better make this shot count, Seven. 
I raise my hands slowly above my head away from my guns, but still flexing my abs. With all eyes fixated on Sven, he quick draws his gun and fires at me. I don't even fucking blink as the shot hits me in the leg. Blood spurts out of my thigh and I begin to laugh. Sven's eyes fill with fear. Oh, shit. Goodbye, Seven. Before Sven can get off another shot, I quick draw my gun on the left side and throw it up high in the air. With Sven's attention diverted to the flight of my spinning gun, I quick draw my right pistol and shoot the spinning gun's trigger, causing it to fire a bullet right through Sven's head. He falls over dead on the ground, staring straight ahead. The entire crowd groans in delight. I blow kisses to the crowd and give a double crotch chop with my hands, playing to my fans, before limping over to pick up my own gun. Out of nowhere, a huge barbarian of a man tackles me from behind, knocking the wind out of me as I hit the dirt. He flips me over on my back and punches me in the face with one of the hardest shots I've ever taken in my entire life. I try to gather my bearings, but I'm immediately rocked again in the face by his other fist. When I try to cover up, I'm hit with two more punches from different arms. What the hell is happening? I squint through my defense and see that this beast has a third arm growing out of his chest. His eyes are off-center and spaced way too far apart. You killed my brothers, he says in a deep, delayed lisp. Oh, fuck. As soon as I hear that voice, panic washes over me. Remember earlier when I said there was only one thing that trumps old man strength? Welcome to retard strength. That's not a euphemism for anything. I'm talking about the strength of a mentally or physically retarded adult male. There is nothing else in this world that compares to their kind of strength. That kind of power is just downright fucking scary. <laughs> God threw them a bone by providing that kind of strength. I'll even go as far as to say that they deserve to be that strong. When you have that much incest going on inside of one family like the Schlagers do, a human mutation is bound to happen, and right now, this three-armed toxic Avenger man-child is locked in. The arm that has grown from his chest is choking me, while his other two hit me in the face with a series of right-left combos. I have no chance of reaching for my gun. Just when I'm about to black out, bang! A lone gunshot rings out and pierces the heart of the beast. He slumps over face down on top of me. In the distance, I see smoke rising from Daniel's gun. Miraculously, he's somehow still alive. I throw the dead retard off of me and limp over to Daniel. His little body is riddled with bullet holes. As he coughs up blood all over the place, I grab his hand. He tries to smile through clenched teeth as he looks up at me, but he's shaking pretty badly. Did I do good, Dad? You did real good, son. If I'm being picky, you could have killed him a little sooner, though. I took a lot of shots. You did? Look at me! A warm father-son laugh ensues as he coughs up more blood, sensing the inevitable. I squeeze his hand as he looks down at his blood-soaked clothes and asks, Am I going to die? No. You're a fucking street, James. It takes more than 63 shots to kill a street, James, do you hear me? He tries to smile and nods his little head. I think I see totally fucking Mexico. It's just an illusion. The way the sun catches a statue, everyone in town can probably see him. 
You stay with me and keep your eyes open, okay? Daniel tries to keep them open with all of his mites, but they slowly close and his head falls back as I hold him in my arms. I need a fucking doctor! A man in a suit holding a doctor's bag sprints over. I'm a doctor. Oh, thank God. My boy has been shot and I think he's dead. You gotta help me. Looks like you were hit too. He says as he points down at my leg, which is still shooting out blood. Here, drink this. He pulls out a small brown medicine bottle and I take a swig. Holy shit, this is strong. What's in it? It's a new medicine called laudanum that contains opium. I got it from a Chinese doctor, and no one knows the side effects of it, so go easy. I've already pounded half the bottle before the doctor finishes his sentence. I pick up Daniel and load him into the doc's carriage. As we head off, I look out at the carnage strewn in the street as we ride away. I see Curly's face lying face up, blood covering most of his face paints. Through weary eyes, I see him slowly come to life and pull something out of a bullet wound in his chest. He tries to grin as he proudly holds up a nine of diamonds. Was this the card you picked? He asks in a whisper. No. Sorry, Curly. He nods in disappointment as his head falls back dead on the ground. Truthfully, it is my card, but I hate magic so much that I'm not even willing to give a dying man one more smile. If he was a real magician, he could bring himself back to life right now. Guess who doesn't open his eyes ever again? Chapter 8. Death is a heavy thing. Especially when the corpse weighs more than 800 pounds. I awake to see the doctor standing over me, snapping his fingers in front of my face, staring at me intently. It takes me a moment to assess my surroundings, but finally I recognize that I'm at home in my own bed. My leg has been bandaged where I got shot, my cock is tied down to my other leg. Obviously, it was a preventative measure, so the doc wouldn't be knocked unconscious by a stray boner while tending to my well-being. How are you feeling, Mr. Street James? Pretty fucking shitty, dude. Well, I don't mean to pull my pants down and dump out on you anymore. But there's a rumor in town that the law is coming for you. What law? We don't have fucking law in this town. Loretta walks in hurriedly, wearing a long black dress. Good. You're finally awake. Get dressed. People will be arriving for the funeral soon. The funeral is Saturday. How long have I been sleeping? Three days. She says flatly. Awesome. Doc, I'm definitely going to need more of that laudanum. I've left four bottles for you and your son. Daniel is alive? Where is he? He's sleeping in his room. It's a miracle. He was shot 63 times. I've never seen anything like it. Well, let's not forget that I was shot, too. Loretta shakes her head and says, Daniel's not saying what happened, so maybe you can fill me in on why our son was shot 63 times and you were only shot once. He's really not that nimble. Lovely. Help me put the food out for the funeral. It starts in 20 minutes, so get up. As she walks the doctor out, I rise up out of bed, buck naked, limp over to the window where I see people starting to arrive out front. I spot Ron and Sheila pulling up on their gimpy horse, so I pull the curtain all the way back and make sure they both see me in all my glory. Sheila waves at me, and I salute her back by smacking my dong against the window. Once I'm satisfied with Ron's level of discomfort, I take a swig of laudanum and begin to get dressed. 
Getting dressed for your own son's funeral is really tough. As a parent, it's something you never prepare yourself for. Staring into my closet full of suits, I want something that says, This motherfucker is hard, but isn't trying too much. I finally decided an all-black ensemble made entirely out of bison skin accessorized with bison skin boots. As I limp down the stairs, I see that Loretta has everything beautifully organized. I stuff a fistful of deviled eggs into my face on the way outside to greet everyone. Standing in the sweltering heat waiting for me are the town preacher, Pastor Jenkins, my remaining sons, and Ron. Pastor Jenkins, who is super fucking old, looks up at me hesitantly before raising his hand. Speak, your high power, I instruct him. St. James, I don't know how to tell you this, but we're gonna need some extra pallbearers. Why? Your son weighs more than 800 pounds. Shit. I forgot about that. Typically, that amount of weight wouldn't be a problem for me to carry on my own. But with me being shot in the leg, I can't get any lift out of my quads. Are there any more dudes here? Just a few boys from the blind school down the road. We could yell out our steps in unison, Pastor Jenkins meekly says. I wish I could unhear what you just said. Jesus, man. All right. I guess everyone is going to have to man the fuck up today. I'll do the heavy lifting in the front and everyone else fall behind. Ron, don't you dare let that back end fall or it's your ass. I spit in my hands, then chalk up over by the porch. Yes, I keep chalk out in front of my house for when I have to lift heavy shit. Curly was a freak of nature lifting that wagon without chalking up. Full disclosure, I don't have old man strength right now. Instead, I just possess a lot of God-given raw natural power. Plus, I'm on opium, so I could literally lift a fucking bank vault. After a sweet chalk sesh, I lift the casket up with ease and everyone falls in behind me holding up the back. We walk toward the big oak tree down by the river while Loretta starts playing a set of 17th century bagpipes that her parents brought over from Ireland. A smattering of people begin weeping, including Sheila. Another woman in the front row starts peeling potatoes by hand, which is apparently a tradition at Irish funerals. With only about ten yards remaining on our walk, I feel the back half of the casket slipping. Behind me, I hear grunting and labored breathing. Turning back, I see Ron's arm shaking, desperately trying to hold up the casket. Gung! It falls to the ground, and everyone gasps, including Loretta, who blows out a bagpipe and starts crying hysterically. God damn it, Ron, what the fuck did I tell you? No, you're, you're right. I totally deserve this one. He says as he gets on all fours and assumes a beating position. The pastor runs over and grabs my arm after I've already taken off my belt. You don't want to do this here, St. James. No, I definitely do. Why don't you take your goddamn hand off me and go put one foot in that grave? St. James, this day is about totally Mexico! Loretta cries out. I see the tears in her eyes and decide to postpone Ron's beating. Instead, I take a pool of laudanum and lift up the casket, fireman carry style, over my shoulder, walking it over on my own. 
People clapped for my bravery as I lowered into the pre-dug grave. One woman even flashes me a beaver when I walk up to give my eulogy. <clears throat> what can I say about our beloved son, totally fucking Mexico street chains that already hasn't been said? He was a magical boy with big hopes and dreams. He was destined to change the world. His unique vision and outlook on life were things to be cherished by all who met him. Well, I can't really say that because he was taken from us at four years old. So, who knows what the fuck he was thinking about. What I can tell you is that he had two arms and two legs. Ten fingers and ten toes. He had blonde hair and a pretty ripped physique for a four-year-old. He loved to spend his free time, which was all the time, playing outside with my freshly sharpened axes, swimming in the river with heavy rocks tied to his legs, or just fooling around in our knife drawer in the kitchen. Normal kid stuff, you know? That little son of a bitch had a heart of gold that was only eclipsed by his golden spirits. So today, as his tiny little body gets lowered into the ground forever... I want you to take solace in the fact that the men who did this were killed in brutal fashion also. All 17 of them were shot dead by me, a 70-year-old man painted as a clown, and another one of my sons, Daniel, who was shot 63 times in the altercation. I'm proud of you, Daniel, for killing that retard. I point up to Daniel, who sits in a full body cast with his legs stuffed outside the window. He nods and tips his bottle of laudanum toward me and we cheers. I know what you're thinking. Doesn't senseless violence breed more senseless violence? To those people thinking that bullshit, I ask you. Is touch not a sense? Because right now my dead son will never get to be touched again. Not by his family. Not by a woman. And certainly not by a stranger who just wants to party. So keep your thoughts to yourself and don't ever voice them if you're thinking shit like that. If you want to ask me how many fucks I give that those men are dead, the answer is zero. Did I kill one or two of them first? Probably. Shit gets wild when grown men are drinking. That's not an excuse to kill an innocent child. If you have a problem, handle it man to man. I wink at Ron, who looks away. Mentally, my wife and I are going to be really fucked up over this for years and years to come. But that's what life is. It's overcoming tragedy by inflicting it on someone else. I'd like to close my eulogy with one solitary wish for my special tiny dancer. TFM, may you never know the pain of chafing ever again. For in heaven, your sweet nuts will forever be cradled by the powdery hands of angels. I cut my hands together and blow kisses to the crowd with the remaining chalk dust on my palms. Everyone stands up and erupts in applause. There's not a dry eye in the house. Pastor Jenkins asks everyone to bow their heads in a moment of silence. As they bow, I walk over to totally fucking Mexico's open casket and pull out a mallet I have stuffed in the back of my pants and bang it on the statue, which invokes the sound of a church bell ringing. After the fourth and final gong, one for every year of his life, I'd take one last sip from my bottle of laudanum, which proves to be a little too much. Look, there are a lot of questions surrounding what happens next. 
Most people think that I am so stricken with grief that I hurl myself onto his casket, but in truth, I black out and fall on top of it. I can feel people throwing roses and potato peelings on top of me as they pass by. The one thing I can be sure of is that for the first time in my life, I am truly grieving. After an hour of my being blacked out on top of the casket, Loretta leaves me there and continues the reception inside. I probably would stay there all night if I weren't awakened by the woman who flashed me her beaver during my eulogy. She is now standing over me with her legs spread wide apart, straddling both sides of the grave, whispering down to me. Hey, hey, look up here. Can you see my vagina? I open my eyes. Of course. You're not wearing any panties. I can see your whole birth canal. Good. Do you want to screw? I nod my head yes, and she climbs down inside the grave with me. I may be groggy as shit, but I can recognize a sweet beave anywhere. Within seconds, she unzips my pants, puts my cowboy hat on her head, and jams my dick inside of her. I move my hand up her dress and squeeze her tits as she rides me, slowly starting to come to life. Now that I'm fully awake with the realization of where I'm at, I stop her. What's wrong? She asks. This. We're fucking on top of my dead kid's caskets. I've done a lot of horrific shit in my life, but this one takes the quadriplegic's kick. Does it? Or is it the ultimate send-off? What better way to feel alive again than to have sex on top of death? Your son would want this. Wow. This woman is fucking crazy, but she makes a great point. I don't even have a counter-argument, so I just shrug my shoulders and let her continue. She grabs my hands and then slams them down on the casket above my head. Just lay there and grieve for me, baby. She picks up her pace and little chunks of dirt from inside the grave begin falling all around us. I'm not gonna lie, this really is helping me grieve and I'm actually starting to get emotional about it. I look up toward the sky and see totally fucking Mexico's spirit running around the grave in circles with my steed. The two of them are laughing. This strange gypsy woman combined with all this laudanum has taken me to a different planet. When I climax, it feels like a euphoric rainbow is shooting out of my dickhole. She clutches a fistful of roses and orgasms after me, which is a first. The thorns of the stems cause her hands to bleed and she holds them over my mouth, letting her blood drip down into it. This is fucking life. She moans. I look into her eyes and scream, Mi vida loca. A strange man peeks his head into the grave and destroys my moment of unadulterated bliss. He has a gun drawn, aiming it at my head. I go to grab my own guns, but my pants are around my ankles. Are you St. James Street, James? You can see my dick and balls, can't you? Of course I'm him. I get up and pull my pants back on. Who the fuck are you? He smiles and pulls out a copper badge. I'm the new sheriff in town, and you're wanted for murder. Leave the guns and put these on. He throws down a pair of handcuffs, which I properly throw back at him. Let me get out of my dead son's grave first, asshole. 
As the strange gypsy woman and I climb out of the grave, I notice the entire reception has stopped and come outside. Loretta stands on the front porch watching me and who I believe to be her friend dusting the dirt off our clothes. A look of disgust and confusion washes over her face. What the hell is going on? She asks. I'm Sheriff Madison and this man is wanted for multiple murders. I was appointed by the U.S. Marshals this morning to curb the violence in this town, so I'm taking him in. Put the cuffs on, sir. Or what, I ask. He draws his other gun and points it at me as well. You're wanted dead or alive. It's your choice. All right. I choose your death. I look up at Daniel, who was a street howitzer aimed at the sheriff. The sheriff's eyes grow wide with fear at the sight of a young boy in a full body cast holding a shotgun. Although you can barely see his face from inside the casket, you can make out a smile. Boom! He pulls the trigger, blasting the sheriff square in the chest. The entire reception retreats in horror as he hits the ground, bleeding. I kneel down next to him. Don't ever try to arrest someone at their son's funeral. Ever. On the positive side, though, you won't be able to tell my wife that I was fucking that weird girl on top of his caskets. Rest in peace, Spidercock. As the sheriff takes his last breath, he holds out his hand for me to hold, and I casually spit in it. This isn't a fucking cotillion, Holmes. His head falls back on the ground and he dies. I then kick his dead body, because why the fuck not? Everyone please continue to grieve. Ron, come dig a grave for this bastard. There's a shovel out in the barn. Ron shakes his head and says, You know the marshals will come looking for you after this. You can wake up tomorrow in your bed or in a ditch, Ron. It's your choice. So shut the fuck up and go dig a grave for this asshole. Oh, and fill in the dirt on totally fucking Mexico's grave too while you're at it. That will make up for your casket failure earlier and we'll call it evesies. Walking up to the house, I wink at Daniel up in the window and he winks back at me and puts down the shotgun. The kid is quickly becoming my favorite son. Not only did he take 63 shots like a boss, but now he's icing other people who threaten me. Loretta stops me on the porch on the way in. When is the killing going to stop, St. James? I don't know. I don't have anyone on tap for tonight, so I guess now? Uh, wait, there's always the off chance that Ron gets out of line and decides to grow a pair, so maybe him? But that's probably it. Do you want more of your family to get killed? Is that it? Everything I do is to protect this family. I'm gonna go upstairs and check on our son who was shot 63 times. I grab the remaining tray of deviled eggs and head up the stairs. With the sun setting, I pull up a chair and sit next to Daniel. Both sets of our legs dangle out the upstairs window, his obviously set in a body cast. We drink Londum together and watch the sun go down. From up here, I can tell that he was definitely watching me fuck that weird girl in the grave. He offers me any part of his cast to wipe her blood off my face from the roses. I oblige with his right arm. <laughs> Whenever people tell me that I'm not a good father, I often tell them of this moment. This is way better than teaching him to ride one of those bicycles with a huge tire in the front and a tiny one in the back. I put my arm around his body cast, and we quietly nod off together in a drug-fueled haze.
Chapter 9. There are laws now? What the fuck? The following morning, I wake up to the vibrant sounds of birds chirping and a warm summer breeze blowing across my face. I have my arm around my son, and there's urine all over the hardwood floor from both of us blacking out on laudanum last night. This tranquil moment is suddenly interrupted by two sets of shotgun blasts. Out in the yard, I see 30 U.S. Marshals on horseback with their guns pointed at the house. I hear the click of Daniel's shotgun as he wakes up, too. St. James Street, James! We have a warrant for your arrest for the murder of a sheriff and 19 Schlager brothers! Come out with your hands up, or we will burn the house down! One of the Marshals yells out. We can take them, Dad. Daniel says with a slight opium slur. Probably but they would kill the rest of our family. I'm willing to take that risk if you are. Loretta comes running in, holding our youngest son. St. James, there's a bunch of U.S. Marshals outside, and they say they're going to burn the house down if you don't come out. Jesus, did you two piss yourselves? It appears so. Can you mop this up after I leave? I'm going to let them take me in after I take a bath. Dad, no! Daniel says. I have to, Daniel. I don't want anything else to happen to you guys. Don't worry. It will probably be a slap on the dick and then they'll let me go. Here, take this. With pride, I hand him my bottle of laudanum and stand up. Are you coming out or not, St. James? Another marshal yells. I stick my head out the window and yell down, Yeah, I'm coming out. Just give me a quick 45 to wash off my privates. The marshals all look at each other, confused. As a show of good faith, I'm going to throw down my guns, okay? The marshals nod as I unbuckle my holster and hold my guns up. When I toss the holster out the window, it takes a weird hop off the roof and the guns hit the ground. They both fire simultaneously, killing two more marshals. Their two bodies slump over, falling off their horses onto the dirt. You just killed fraternal twins, St. James! Another marshal screams. Shit. Sorry. Total accident. I'm going to wash up now. We're adding them to your murder count. What the fuck ever? Before I take off my clothes and head for the bath, I kiss Loretta on the cheek and instruct her to paint the crotch area on Daniel's cast from yellow back to white. A parent's job is never done, you know? An hour later, after a good cock soak, I depart the house with my hands in the air. The marshals approach me with their guns drawn and place the handcuffs on me. They pull one of their horses over and instruct me to get on it so they can lead me into town. Fuck that. I ride my own steed into town and you're going to have more blood on your hands, you hear? Daniel whistles from above, his shotgun trained at them. With half of his face now frozen from taking so much laudanum, it looks kind of crazy so they decide to let me ride my steed. I give him a two-finger whistle, and on cue, he slow trots out of the barn. Looking back at the house, I see Lou standing on the porch, waving at me, surrounded by the rest of my kids. She mouths the words, Thank you. Daniel holds up the bottle of laudanum and pours out a sip in respect. It finally sets in that I'm really going to jail. As we make our way through town, everyone stops and gawks at me, surrounded by the marshals. 
I'd take it all in, knowing that this image of me riding to jail wearing handcuffs will only cause more people to fear me. The marshal's horses hit the end of Main Street and slowly come to a halt. Curiously, I've never been to this part of town before. Oh, by this part of town, I mean any building or structure past the whorehouse. This is a newly built jail at the end of the street, a block down from the whorehouse, so I haven't been here yet. A guy on a ladder is finishing painting the word jail on the building in black letters when the marshals ask me to get down from my steed. You want us to take your horse back to your house for you? You're going to be here a while, one of the marshals says to me. No, he can find his way home if he chooses. Maybe he has a date in town tonight. I try not to put any limits on him. Oh, that's real funny. We'll see how funny you are from inside a jail cell. Do you guys need more time to paint the word cell above it first? One of the marshals grabs me and leads me through the front door. On the way in, I shake my leg twice and an apple rolls down from my pant leg resting on my boot. I kick it up in the air to my horse who catches it midair in his mouth. You keep an apple tucked inside your jeans? A marshal asks. I didn't know it was there until I stood up. My cock is like an elephant trunk. Sometimes it just reaches up and grabs fruit unbeknownst to me. Come on, asshole, he says, leading me in. Looking at the decor, you can tell that it was probably an old blacksmith shop before this. They throw me inside an old wrought iron 10 by 14 foot jail cell and slam the door. A janky bed, a bucket of water to wash up in, and a hole in the ground to piss and shit in are all that await me. In the cell next to me, I see a fat Mexican man taking a grump in his hole while eating a half-open can of beans at the same time. A few flies swarm around him, and the smell is making a mural of the Virgin Mary that he has painted above his bed cry. One of the marshals sees me shake my head in disgust. It's a miracle, isn't it, St. James? He says as he laughs and points at the painting. You ain't in that log mansion out in the woods anymore, are you, boy? Another one says. I quickly pull out my buck knife from the back of my jeans and whip it through the jail cell bars, pinning a marshal's shirt to the wall. Let me make one thing clear to you. If I wanted you dead, you'd be dead by now. With that little reminder, I walk over to the bed and lie down. Keep an eye on him, deputy. If he so much as shit's wrong, shoot him. The marshal I pinned says, How does someone shit wrong, I think to myself, as the marshals leave? Suddenly, the fat Mexican dude farts, and it sounds like a phone book is being ripped in half. The wall behind his makeshift toilet inside his cell had suddenly splattered like a can of chocolate syrup exploded in a campfire. I guess my question has been answered. How long am I going to be in here, deputy? There'll be a trial in about a week or so, he says. What? I will be wearing your skin and pretending to be you if I'm in here that long. Nothing I can do about speeding up your trial. One word. Conjugal. Them shits better be allowed then. I might be able to let that slide. Good. I'm sure I'll have a lot of visitors. My steed peeks his snout through the bars of my window. I look up and see his sad eyes and stand by my bed, leaning into him, nose to nose. When he exhales, I inhale. That's how fucking close we are.
<laughs> it's been a real fuckery of the last couple of days, hasn't it? Why don't you go home and get some rest? He shakes his head no. Shh. I'm going to be fine. The children need you. Plus, I smuggled a full bottle of this in, I say, pulling a bottle of laudanum out of my boot and waving it in front of his face. He neighs with excitements. Now go on and get your big, beautiful dick out of here. He nods and slowly trots off. As I watch him right away, he stops and lifts his front legs in the air and neighs as loud as possible up toward the heavens. I swear to God I'd rather lose another kid than lose my steed. The following morning, I'm awakened by the deputy, telling me that I have a visitor. As my eyes adjust to the sun, I see the Mexican shitting. Again. Hey, Chubbs, you shit in that hole one more time today and I'm going to bury you in it, comprende? I say to him sternly. What am I supposed to do if I have to go to the bathroom? I reach into my jeans pocket and pull out a small sewing kit and toss it to him. You better start sewing your asshole shut. Cheek to cheek. A classic backstitch should work. He looks at me defeated as the deputy walks back in with my first visitor. To my surprise, it's Sheila, and she's carrying a picnic basket. She's definitely not the first person I was expecting to come visit me, but she'll do. I haven't had sex in almost 12 hours, so obviously my jeans can barely contain my cock right now. To her credit, Sheila looks prettier than usual, and a lot more done up than the last time I saw her. She squeezes the bars of the jail set with her free hand and softly cries. I get up out of bed and walk over to comfort her. Why are you crying? Does seeing me behind bars make you sad? No, it's not that. The smell in here is horrific. I feel like my eyes are melting. I look over at the fat Mexican and shake my head. What? I'm doing it! He screams as he lies down on his small bed and begins sewing his ass cheeks together with a sewing kit I gave him. Hopefully the stink will clear out soon, Sheila. I'm just worried about my tear ducts returning to normal. She says as she wipes her eyes. I'm not a doctor, so I can't promise you anything. What are you doing here? Well, I was just on my way into town to bring Ron a turkey sandwich, and I thought I'd check on you. I brought you some food in case you were hungry, too. She opens the picnic basket to reveal blackened stuffed flounder, fresh cornbread served in a hollowed-out gourd, and three different freshly baked pies, pumpkin, blueberry, and apple. I grab her face and gently stroke her cheek with my thumb, wiping away her tears. She presses her head up against the bars. Sheila. I know, St. James. I shouldn't have. Stop. Yes, you should have brought me all this food. I lean my head against the bars, too. Is that the only reason you came here? To give me a delicious meal that you would never cook for your own husband? She shakes her head no. Through her tears, she whispers, I need it. Please. You need what, Sheila? I want to hear you say it. I need that pork sword. She whispers as she points down to my cock. Of course I know damn well what she needs, but it's nice to hear it out loud sometimes.
I grab a tin coffee mug and run it against the bars as loud as I can. Hey, boss man, can you let the lady in? Is she your wife? The deputy screams back. Nope. Then no, she can't come inside your cell. Anything you want to do outside of it is your business. Sheila and I look at each other, realizing this probably isn't a good idea. So instead, we decide to go with doggy style and forego any attempt at missionary. She turns and hikes up her dress, pressing her ass into me while gripping the cell bars. This gives her great leverage. After the first few thrusts, I let out a piercing shrill like something out of Greek mythology as I orgasm. Sheila turns and looks at me, confused. Oh my god, what just happened? Sorry? It's just, you're the first woman I've been with since I've been in jail. You get it, right? She pushes her dress back down and turns to kiss me. Of course. I'm so sorry. I didn't know I was the first. You've been in here almost half a day. Don't fucking tell anybody about this. Come back in a few days and we can have a longer sesh, all right? She kisses my forehead and leaves. I'm so famished that I immediately start grabbing food out of the picnic basket and stuffing it into my face. The fat Mexican is staring at the food like a homeless man's dog. After mouthing to himself practice sentences of what he's going to say, he musters up the courage to ask if he can have some. Do you think I could have your leftovers? Not a fucking prayer, my man. I can still smell you. Keep sewing. Please, I'm so hungry. Tell you what, if you go the entire week without taking a shit until I go to trial, maybe I'll give you some food, okay? Okay. Look, I'm really fucking full right now and I just need a nap. So I'm gonna need you to just shut the fuck up for the rest of the day. The second I close my eyes and drift off, I hear the deputy scream out, St. James, you have another visitor! I look up and see the batshit gypsy woman from the funeral. She's also carrying a large picnic basket on one arm while staring at me as if she's known me for years. Oddly, she suddenly begins weeping too. I put my hand through the bars and stroke her cheek exactly the same way I did with Sheila. Are you crying because of the smell? I ask. No, my tears are from seeing you confined to the cell. I overheard your wife explaining to your kids why you were in prison when I was hiding outside of your window today. I'm sorry, did you just say you were outside my home? It was an accident. I dozed off in the bushes while I was watching your kids sleep last night. Here, I brought you some pies and some freshly made authentic burritos hand-rolled in Mexico. Thanks, but I'm super full. Just throw those out in the street. I don't have any use for them. The fat Mexican starts breathing heavily, trying to suck his tears back into his mouth while biting his lower lip like a baby. He bashes his head into the wall over and over again as I rest my forehead against the gypsies through the cell door. I look deep into her eyes, still trying to place who the fuck she is. By the way, who are you? Are you friends with my wife? Never met her. Truthfully, I'm just a gypsy who travels from town to town, reading obituaries and attending funerals. Usually I fuck the husband, brother, father of the deceased. Occasionally I'll hang around outside their house for a few days afterward. That way I feel like I really know them. Why? 
I get off on it. It's like I have my own secret throughout the day. That's pure fucking insanity. Look, I appreciate the food and whatnot, but the deputy won't let you in because you're not my wife. That's cool. I just wanted to take you in my mouth through the bars. Someone has already been there earlier, I say as I point down to my crotch. To my chagrin, this somehow makes her even more into it. Never one to disappoint, I unzip my pants and she begins to fellache me through the bars. Whoever this gypsy woman is, she's a fucking pro. After about 20 minutes of her working me over like a mime-pulling rope, I explode in her mouth. Upon completion, she puts her index finger up to her lips and begins peeing all over the floor. When she finishes, she slaps me across the face and leaves without saying a word. Exhausted and depleted, I walk over and collapse on my bed. Just as my eyes close again, I hear the deputy yell out, St. James, you have a visitor! Jesus Christ, who is it? When I look up, I see Loretta standing there, holding yet another picnic basket. Oh my God, you look like hell. I didn't know it was going to be this bad in here. Please kill me! Just fucking kill me! The Mexican screams as he tries to cut his wrists open with a butter knife. Realizing it's too dull, he throws it on the ground and takes off running headfirst into the wall, knocking himself unconscious. I shrug my shoulders at Loretta. This is what I've been dealing with in here for the last 12 hours. Am I standing in urine? It smells like urine. Yeah, let me get you out of that. Boss man, this is my wife. Come let her in. The deputy takes his sweet-ass time walking back to my cell to open the door. He pulls out a giant key ring off his belt and fumbles through what looks like a thousand skeleton keys before selecting one and opening the door. When Loretta enters, he slams the door behind her. One hour with the missus, St. James, he says as he leaves. We walk over to the bed and I put my head in her lap. She runs her fingers through my hair and stares deeply into my eyes with a sad look on her face. I know what this look means, because I've seen it 4,203 times. Do you want me to make love to you? I know you've been in here a while. That's really sweet, Lou. But honestly, I just want you to lay with me and hold me right now. This is the first and last time that I've ever said those words to a woman in my entire life. Dead serious. After doing back-to-back -back loads, I'd really be struggling to keep the clothesline up, and I just want to get some sleep. She lies down next to me and puts her head on my chest. I can feel her tears soaking through my shirt as I close my eyes. She whispers to me sweetly. It really fucking stinks in here. I know. Next time you come, can you bring a sewing kit with more string? It's a long story. Before she can answer, I fall fast asleep. An hour later, the deputy politely wakes us up by banging all of his keys against the cell bars. As Loretta gets up to leave, I grab her ass with a strong squeeze, nothing playful about it. She'll definitely masturbate to that ass grab later, trust me. There's nothing like being groped by a full-fledged criminal behind bars to send her home with an itchy middle finger around the panty line area later. After hitting the bottle of laudanum, 
I get maybe another hour of sleep, and then the deputy wakes me up yet again. You have another visitor, St. James. Deep in a laudanum haze, I walk over to the cell door. Who is it? It's me. I'm your visitor. He says, standing there. What? I want to suck your cock, man. What the shit? Fully awake now, upon further examination, I realize this isn't the deputy. It's the crazy gypsy woman wearing all the deputy's clothes, including his oversized boots. She's also wearing what appears to be his shaved-off mustache, which is glued above her upper lip. As she fumbles with the keys to let herself in, I freak out. What the fuck are you doing? You can either stick your dick through the bars again, or I'm coming in. She says, still in a deep male voice. What happened to the deputy? I knocked him out with chloroform and took his clothes. Have you ever been blown by a deputy? No. She laughs. <laughs> awesome. This will be a new experience for both of us. Because I've never blown anyone as a deputy. Exciting, isn't it? Not really. Use that fear and release it into my mouth when you jizz. If you have to hit me afterward, I want you to know I welcome it. At this point, I am physically afraid for my life and I let her blow me as the deputy. It isn't easy to orgasm, let alone maintain an erection, but I do it. After I come, she grabs my right hand and decides to smack herself in the face with it. She then looks up at me in shock and walks out, twirling the key ring on her finger. Lights out, St. James. Still using her deep deputy voice. This concludes my first full day in jail.